It's Tuesday, November 2nd, and you are tuned in to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us this morning. Coming up in just a couple of moments, Tara Sloan on the NHL, a big show in store today. It's important that you know that this show is presented by our title sponsors, the team at Bitcoin Well, and a big shout out from our house to theirs, so to speak. A big congratulations to Bitcoin Well's founding CEO, Adam O'Brien, who just yesterday was named a member of the illustrious list that is Edify's top 40 under 40. Here's the thing about Adam, though. I don't know if he wants me saying this or not. Adam's not even 30 yet. What a flex. This guy's doing amazing things in the world of Bitcoin. Building a company publicly traded, you know that, the first publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company in Canada. We believe on planet Earth, and he's doing it all out of his hometown of Edmonton. Congratulations, Adam. Congratulations to the team at Bitcoin Well. You can find out more about what they do right at the top of the sponsors page on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Sir Hoyles has her hands full this week. This is uh, developing stories all around. We're keeping an eye on the COP26 conference in Glasgow. We're going to take you there in just a second. Of course, there's a, there's a lot of politics happening, too. And uh, a little bit later on in today's show, we'll get into the results of our most recent question of the week. We call it Get Real, our question of the week presented by our research and strategy partners at Y Station. We asked you about your political priorities, what government programs are important to you, what sort of spending you'd like to see, or or maybe some some dialing back. We'll get into those results. This is a great time to remind you that our current question of the week is ready to rock right now. If you're a member of our panel, you're already getting email reminders. If not, you can check it out on our website. Again, ryanjesperson.com. Right at the top, you can see here, question of the week. We had a fantastic and enlightening conversation about ADHD uh, on a recent Friday Real Talk roundtable. And the team at Y Station thought it might be a neat opportunity to talk to you and pick your brains, so to speak, about neurodivergence. Uh, we realized as a team, and, and they did as well at Y Station, that it's maybe a topic that we haven't discussed enough. And so we want to ask about your neurodivergence, your reality, your awareness, maybe your own mental health by asking how you relate to this subject. If you yourself identify with this and some other connected key issues, there's a bit of a caveat on this one, says the team. Uh, this may be an awkward set of questions this week, but we think it could lead to more conversations about mental health. It's important that you know that all of your answers are confidential. Uh, even if you come in through the panel, the team puts together the report from a data sheet that has no identifying information. And so we appreciate in advance your candor and your openness here. We recognize engagement might be a, a little bit lower on this question of the week because maybe not everybody will connect with it. But I encourage you to check it out. See if it picks something within you. See if it stimulates something. See if see if you connect with one of those questions and we'll review those results next week. Tara Sloan will join us, the host uh, from Hometown Hockey uh, on Sportsnet. In just a few minutes, uh, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman and uh, Bill Daly, his right-hand man, spoke yesterday. And if you watched 
hometown hockey. If you watched the broadcast last night, you know that Tara's assessment is that the league still has a lot of work ahead of it. And we're going to get into that with her. But first, we want to take a look at some of the things that are happening in the world around us, including world leaders at the COP26. This is the World Leaders Summit at the UN Climate Change Conference 2021. We teed it up yesterday, a couple of great expert guests, and we have an update for you. Uh, for starters, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, uh, spoke uh, to those gathered in attendance, the dignitaries, the political leaders, the government representatives, and he honed in on fossil fuels and what meaningful action has to look like. Here he is. Our addiction to fossil fuels is pushing humanity to the brink. We face a stark choice. Either we stop it or it stops us. And it's either we stop it or it stops us. So what does that mean? What's the tangible action? We talked about this yesterday. What, what, what are global citizens going to be looking for from, you know, the context of a takeaway or uh, the context of meaningful progress or, or a viable, doable commitment? Well, more than 100 world leaders there have, have promised to end and reverse deforestation by 2030. I sometimes feel like these dates seem to be a little bit far away. You know, we, we, we heard from. Uh, you know, we've heard from people talking about EVs on the show and past about electric vehicles. And they'll say, for example, one example, you know, General Motors has vowed to have an, an all electric lineup by 2034. And in one context, that feels like far, far away. And in another context, you realize that is going to happen soon. You know, uh, 2030 to reverse deforestation. You're talking about nine years from now. I mean, these are some major upheavals. There's some some practices that are that are really going to have to change when it comes to industry, in particular, in some countries that might be lagging behind with regards to some of the resources to impact that change. So that's something that we'll be keeping an eye on for sure. Some of these timelines, they may seem far away, but they're not far away at all. Absolutely. Um, I I'm I, I just I feel like it couldn't happen fast enough. Like yesterday, please. Yeah. <laughs> and, and people feel that urgency. And I get it. But then it's also these are the conversations we want to have on the show. It's like when the rubber hits the road, what does that mean? Right. And so you take another example here in, in Western Canada might be, you know, anti-pipeline activists or, or you know, or however you want to refer to it. It's like it's like pro-life, pro-choice. How do you want to call them? Are they, are they anti-pipeline activists or are they like pro-climate activists? It depends on what you want to call them. But people might say some people might say you got to leave the rest of the oil in the ground. Mm. Like as of right now, you got to leave the oil in the ground. Other people will say, well, it's not realistic and not doable and economically devastating. And we have to come up with a plan to transition out. That makes sense. That doesn't lead to devastating unemployment and people unable to heat their homes in the winters and that sort of a thing. You know what I mean? You got to find that balance. And I think that that's what COP26 has got to be. That's what a lot of people are going to be looking for. What did Canada's prime minister say? PM Trudeau announcing yesterday Canada will impose a hard cap on emissions from the oil and gas sector in a, in a mission to reach net zero by 2050. Jason Kenney's had something to say about that, and we'll touch on that in just a moment. India's prime minister, uh, PM Modi, pledging that one of the world's most populated countries, one of the world's largest countries, India, will reach net zero emissions by 2070, uh, making a major commitment to generating 500 gigawatts of non-fossil fuel energy by 2030. Again, a relatively short time frame, 500 gigawatts of non-fossil fuel energy 
uh, generated in India over the next nine years. Curious for your thoughts on this. You can hit us up on the uh, hashtag Real Talk RJ. You can hit us up in the live chat or, of course, you can send us an email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. A reminder, we kicked off our Real Talk email of the month contest yesterday, and so we'll be setting aside emails every month. The absolute best ones, and uh, every month somebody's going to win a Real Talk ceramic diner mug shipped to your door at no cost to you, obviously. Tara Sloan, in just a second, right now it's my pleasure to, to let you know how proud we are to be partnering with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. They've got some amazing concerts coming up through the months of, of November and December, and, and we're going to be telling you all about them. What's most important right now is that you know that at windspearcenter.com you can check out and, and purchase your caught your uh, you can purchase your symphony tickets you can get into that ESO for as little as $25 plus service fees but get this but wait there's more using the exclusive code real talk one word you'll save 10% on all symphony concerts some restrictions apply how cool is that so whether it's mozart and trumpet on november 5th and 6th whether it's peter and the wolf on november 13th or or maybe arrival which is a spotlight on living composers on november 19th you'll find it all at windspearcenter.com the promo code real talk gets you 10 percent off the price of tickets i'm so stoked to have the eso back on board that feels like just a perfect partnership when it comes to where you spend your entertainment dollars, for some people, it is the arts. For some people, it's the symphony. And, and for some people, it's sport. And it's been a, a tough couple of weeks for the brand that is the National Hockey League. It's because, obviously, an investigation into allegations made by a former Chicago Blackhawks prospect have revealed an ugly truth around not just the abuse that one individual, Kyle Beach, uh, encountered, but subsequent abuse, a high school hockey player encountered an intern, the unreported nature of it all once it hit the team's structure and then the complicit nature of the league itself. It has people like commentator Tara Sloan chiming in. You know, Tara, the host of Sportsnet's hometown hockey. She was on the air last night talking about it. We'll get to Tara in just a moment, but I wanted to provide some context first. Now, Rick, Westhead of TSN, Katie Strang from The Athletic did some amazing reporting on this. And you'll hear commentators and hosts across North America crediting them for their work. Kyle Beach showing amazing courage in particular, coming forward as the so-called John Doe, identifying himself and granting an exclusive to Rick Westhead. It's an emotional one. It's a tough one to watch. We wanted to bring you a portion of it before we check in with Tara. Here's Kyle Beach. John Doe in conversation with TSN's Rick Westhead. After management was told about what had happened, Brad Aldrich remained with the team for weeks. What was that like watching him on a daily basis interact with the team, seeing him at the, you know, at the parade, getting a Stanley Cup ring later that summer, having a day with the Stanley Cup? To be honest, Rick, I think the only way I can describe it is that I felt sick. I felt sick to my stomach. I reported this and I was made aware that it made it all the way up the chain of command by Doc Gary and nothing happened. It was like his life was 
the same as it was the day before. The same every day. And then when they won, to see him paraded around, lifting the cup at the parade, at the team pictures, at the celebrations, it made me feel like nothing. It made me feel like I didn't exist. It made me feel that I wasn't important. And it made me feel like that he was in the right and I was wrong. And that's also what Doc Gary told me was that it was my fault because I put myself in that situation. And the combination of these and him being paraded around, them letting him take the Stanley Cup to a high school with kids after they knew what had happened. There's no words to describe it. Tara Sloan's the host of Hometown Hockey on Sportsnet, joining us live this morning. Thanks for making time for us, Tara, and welcome to the show. That's a, I know you've seen that several times. Doesn't make it any easier to watch. It is gutting. Um, that was, I think, one of the portions of the interview that stood out to me so much. I mean, it just, it sort of distills the whole thing, right? Um, his day-to-day life, when we're talking about Aldrich, um, just continued as if nothing had happened. And he was celebrated along with everybody else. And there's Kyle watching um, his life kind of fall to pieces. And but yeah, the whole thing, it's, it's so upsetting. It's It's truly gutting as a fan. And I know there are a lot of victims out there um, who are really triggered by this. So I I just want to say also to them that uh, I see you. Tara, I want to talk to you. Obviously, you were you were tuned in yesterday to the commissioner's media availability, and then you were on the air last night uh, talking about this. Before we get into the response from the National Hockey League or the lack of response, before we get into what you think you know needs to happen moving forward and some of the observations you're making, why don't we talk about the impact of this investigation and the impact of this report, almost 200 pages, and and the conversations around who should be held responsible. You've got the, the former now general manager of the Chicago Blackhawks, the now former general manager of Team USA, Stan Bowman, resigning. You've got Joel Quenville resigning from the Florida Panthers. He was the coach of the Blackhawks at the time. Kevin Sheveldayoff, now the GM of the Jets, appears to have dodged a bullet. He was in the Blackhawks organization, assistant GM, when all of this happened. And then there's a lot of conversation about the players as well. Who knew what and when? Uh, you know, what's the response there? You roll your eyes there. I'd be curious for your assessment of all of this and how it's playing out. Well, my assessment is that it is plain to see that Kyle Beach was failed at every single level. I mean, there are literally a, there's, there are a handful of names that you could identify um, of people who actually did the right thing. And even 11 years later, when given the opportunity to express something um, authentic and heartfelt, um, we hear not only, you know, no sympathy from people like Johnson Taves, Patrick Kane, Duncan Keith, particularly, but an allegiance with Stan Bowman. He's, he's a great, you know, I I like Stan. He's a great guy. I mean, it has been so disappointing. And so, you know, I, yesterday during Gary Bettman's presser, when he talked about how things have changed over the last 10 years, and he kind of gave a laundry list of the things the NHL is, is doing. I thought, well, that's, you're full of crap. Like nothing has changed. That culture of silence is being upheld right now. There is not one single 
current NHL player who played on that 2010 Blackhawks team who has said anything meaningful whatsoever. What would you like to see? I mean, with regard, like, because I get, let me, let me just say, I, these are some, I mean, some of these players are going to the Hall of Fame, right? This is like Jonathan Taves, yeah. Patrick Kane, Duncan Keith in particular will all have punched their tickets to the Hall to be sure. And you get the sense now, I'm not sure anybody believes that the players didn't know. I mean, there are reports that there was, you know, some beaking on the ice during practices. People have talked about the culture in that Blackhawks dressing room. And, and to be honest, I think anybody that's played hockey, anybody that's covered hockey, anybody that knows hockey knows it's not the culture in the Blackhawks dressing room. It's it's dressing room culture. I mean, that's just a fact. And, and I would sort of dare anybody to argue against that. Um, but these players now are in a position where they've said they didn't know. And they don't want to probably get involved. And to a certain degree, you'd say, well, I, I guess I can understand why pro athletes wouldn't want to be dragged into this because they want to talk about power plays and playoff runs. <laughs> they don't want to have these uncomfortable conversations. But it's not almost even realistic that one of them is going to step forward now because essentially it has to start with we lied. Yep. I mean, I understand. I, I You know, I think it is about prioritizing uh, it, and it has to start young, you know, like what are, what are we teaching our kids about what's important is winning the most important thing or is being a good person, the most important thing. And I think if the latter had been instilled in hockey players uh, long ago, we might've had a different outcome here. Um, I mean, I just, I cannot believe that there was one person in this chain of events who, who didn't, you know, just take this a little bit further. Um, so I really think that, yeah, this obviously things start from the top down and the NHL has to be the model for something different, something to change and something better, but it has to start very young. And, and, you know, we hear it with, with hockey parents and yelling at their kids and the, the amount of money and investment and energy that people are putting into um, trying to make sure their kids get to the highest level of hockey possible, the NHL, and it's winning at all costs. And that's going to be a really tough habit to break. The NHL commissioner, Gary Bettman, and, and his deputy, Bill Daly, uh, spoke to reporters, including yourself, yesterday. And, and here's a small portion of what he had to say in the context of the Chicago Blackhawks and the $2 million fine. Here's the commission. The, uh, the Coyotes obviously were, were, were docked two very high draft picks for scouting combine violations. I think it was the Devils were fined more than the Blackhawks were for uh, cap circumvention. I know you said $2 million is substantial. It is to me. It is to a lot of us, obviously. But um, do you feel that, that, that that's a significant punishment to this team? Uh, I do. Uh, the others that you refer to, different contexts, different facts. Uh, this was to make clear that the way the Blackhawks organization – uh, handled this matter was not appropriate, even though that ownership was not aware. Um, and it was also a message to the rest of the league that you need to make sure your organization is functioning property, properly on these matters. What did you make of what Gary Bevan had to say yesterday? I mean, $2 million. Yeah, sure. It's, it's a lot of money to me. Um, I'm not sure it means anything in the context of an organization like the Chicago Blackhawks. I was listening to Chris Johnson talk and I think he said that's, that's the kind of money that a team could bring in, in, in one night, you know, probably last, last Wednesday, they made $2 million. And so you, if you want to hit a team where it hurts, 
um, you do something like you dock them draft picks. So clearly the NHL actually wasn't particularly interested in hitting the Blackhawks where it hurt because $2 million for a team like that is, I believe, a drop in the bucket. We talked, I mean, we've had some some interesting conversations, not necessarily directly related to this story, um, but interviewed Bernie Saunders a couple of weeks ago. You know, his new book talks about how the league did not love him black. Um, he describes the racism that he encountered as, as uh, you know, a, a short term player in the National Hockey League that had a ton of promise and, and was was denied opportunity based on his race. And I asked him if if over the years and to be honest, you know, Taras, I mean, you've done a million interviews. You know, sometimes you, you tee up a question, you expect you know the answer, you get the the absolute opposite. So I say to Bernie, I go, you know, we've seen we've seen things like right to play and we've seen, you know, initiatives like pride tape and we've seen, you know, the league uh, making some sort of commitment to the Black Lives Matter movement in a way. Uh, you know, I mean, certain clubs have certainly, uh, I think, taken some steps in, in the direction of reconciliation. And, and I asked Bernie, like, do these things encourage you? Do you note that the culture is changing? Does does the sport feel more inclusive to you? And the short answer was no. And it was it was pretty discouraging, to be honest, as a hockey fan to hear his assessment from someone who's who's walked a mile. Right. I, I wonder if you think that the change is actually possible when we talk about inclusion in sport, when we talk about this culture of silence that you're talking about. I mean, you say it starts at, at, at the early levels, but so much of this feels so entrenched and I'm just not so sure. I don't know what the NHL can do. Uh, meaningfully, I wonder if the leadership has to come from the players. I wonder if the leadership has to come from fans in a way. I mean, how do you see this? I mean, now that this is out there, now that Kyle Beach has, has come forward and and I don't want to say identified himself because it makes it sound like he's the perpetrator, but he, he's, he's come right. forward and said, I'm not afraid to show my face and to talk about this. Where does it go from here in the, in the next few days and weeks and years? Well, I would be really curious to see, and I will be curious to see, um, where sponsors come in mm. to all of this. Um, because this is such a huge story. It is such a huge blight on the Blackhawks organization. Um, money talks. We know this, right? This is It's all about winning, and winning is about money, really. And so I will be curious to see if some sponsors start to uh, either pull their 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 money out of the the team or start to deliver an ultimatum you know I, I think that there are some good organizations out there who spend lots and lots of money in the NHL um, who are capable of having their voices heard in this way so I think that's going to be part of it in terms of an overall change and shift I mean to say it has to start with the players yeah that would be great but like who <laughs> you know who like Poor Matt Dumba on his own can't he just can't do it. Um, so, I, 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 I the NHL itself they they can't just create a committee. You know mm -hmm. they can't just rely on on Kim Davis who I who is a shining star in the area of diversity and inclusion. But how much power does she actually have? You know so it's nice, but I. I think that these things are largely performative. Um, what they really need is an admission that, that they have um, made a ton of missteps, that their culture is broken, and that they actually need some outside help. 
And I don't know if Gary Bettman is interested in doing that. Well, I mean, you've you've teed up my next question nicely. Uh, everybody knows Sheldon Kennedy, the the former National Hockey League star, was uh, of course the first to come forward and to talk about Graham James and the abuse that he survived at at the hands of his former junior coach. It was Sheldon Kennedy that blew the whistle and and that essentially, I think, carried the lion's share of the attention on that story that impacted a number of players. And I'm not implying that others should be inclined or forced to come forward before they're ready. But Sheldon Kennedy blazed a trail Mm -hmm. and you tweeted uh, about Pierre Lebrun one of the hockey insiders asking the commissioner whether or not the league, the national hockey league would reach out to Sheldon Kennedy, who says, by the way, that they've never done so, which blew my mind. And you tweet Bettman, the commissioner dismissively and arrogantly notes that Sheldon's experience was not at the NHL level. You you tweet Tara Tara, you're still picking your jaw up off the floor. That blew my mind to hear that the league has never consulted with Sheldon Kennedy. I had no idea. Was that news to you? That was news to me. But then he went on to diminish Sheldon's experience um, and, and expertise. Sheldon, as we all know, has spent his life now um, trying to make people aware of sexual abuse in these spaces and trying to help organizations and people um, look out for this and create conversation around it. Uh, So I'm not sure there's any better place to start and anybody better equipped to talk to the NHL about this. I mean, obviously, yes, they have to do due diligence. There are many people doing great work, but Sheldon's your guy. Like it was, I just, I looked at Ron, we were watching the press conference together and I just, my mouth was agape. It was, um, it was gross. Uh, Tanya's watching now live in our chat on YouTube. She says, Gary Bettman is not the leader that the NHL needs for this. Uh, Meantime, Lisa, by the way, says it's great to hear someone like Tara be so direct about this. There needs to be more conversation like this. Uh, Gary Bettman's held a a stranglehold on that commissioner's office for years, and he's steered the league through uh, lockouts and, uh, I mean, really sort of tenuous times. The guy earns, if I remember correctly, eight or nine million dollars a year. Uh, He obviously answers to the owners. I've seen some people, including prominent journalists, suggesting that this might be Bettman's time to go. Um, there have been dust-ups even between Gary Bettman and your co-host, Ron McLean. I mean, it, it depends on who you believe <laughs> on some of the history of why Ron was briefly away from Hockey Night in Canada. A lot of people say that ran up to the NHL commissioner's office. How much of a, how much of a risk, first of all, do you take speaking so frankly about this? Tara, there's one, I mean, one of the several reasons why we wanted to get you on Real Talk is you have not pulled punches over the past week or so. That's why we wanted to talk mm-hmm. to you. Is it risky for you? As a, as a host, as someone who obviously needs to talk to the commissioner that needs to have access to NHL leadership? Uh, in a way, yes. Um, you know, I think I always make it clear that this is my opinion. But sure, I, I'm not sure that that people who are part of the rights holders organization, Sportsnet obviously has the NHL rights in Canada. Um, I'm not sure people like me have always been given license to speak their minds. But I will say, and this is great credit to my employers, that um, you know my bosses have all reached out to me and um, are 
proud of me and um, have encouraged me to speak from my heart. So uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not reporting. I am editorializing and they are fine with that. So, but I think that part of the problem is that, you know, media has been, the media tends to be pawns sometimes, you know, leagues have a lot of control. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know how much control. I really don't know what happens behind the scenes, but I have to imagine that if a league wanted a reporter out of a job, um, they probably could, you know, pull some strings. Well, you know, I mean, you know how it goes. Like, uh, I don't mean to make the Ted Lasso reference, but like Trent Krim, the independent, like, like not everybody can roll in and write scathing pieces and still have access. It goes the same for political journalists, right? And it's the same mm-hmm. with sport. And and I think, first of all, let me be extremely clear. There are there are incredibly talented journalists covering sports in North America. This is not a big swipe at them. But I'm just saying, I mean, if, if you want to talk about Eddie Steele getting fired as the radio analyst for the Edmonton Elks, or there's a ton of other examples, oftentimes if you're critical of management or if you're critical of a team, you're gone. You don't get the interviews anymore. You don't have the access in, uh, anymore. And in a lot of circumstances, I think that keeps people, uh, journalists, sitting on stories or it stops them from digging. And, and that's maybe part of the problem here now it's because of these two journalists rick and katie that i mentioned that this story is where it is and they deserve the credit for that but but maybe the culture has to cover the the commentators as well oh completely 100 percent. and i'm really again i i'm very grateful that sportsnet um, allows me and gives me this space to to speak um but yeah it's it's the same fear it's the same culture of fear you know, everybody's afraid of losing their job. Jonathan Taves is afraid of losing his job in the moment. You know, um, everybody in that Chicago Blackhawks organization, Stan Tara's signals cutting up a little bit, obviously, here. And so we'll hope we can get her back because I, I do have one more question I'd really love to ask. Sam, let me know if she's back. I'm, I want to know what she what she makes of, of the 2010 Cup legacy this is a big cup for the chicago blackhawks right they're they're first of three with that that player group and uh you know that the taves and kane combo that will go into the hall of fame and duncan keith as well um and uh you know obviously i've seen people describe the cup as tainted uh which i which i think is uh, a fair assessment um but i'm curious to know within the hockey world what that means and whether or not there'll be like, I don't, I don't know. And bear with me here as I argue this out loud and sort of think out loud here, but I don't know that there's like an asterisk on the cup win. It's not like it was the, you know, the Houston Astros that were cheating to, to win a world championship, to win the world series. And, and I don't think that people generally respect that world series title by the Houston Astros. I think Astros fans are alone. Remember that the banging on the garbage can thing to send the signals to the batters about the pitches that were coming, cheating, utilizing video technology. I mean, you know, and here the Astros are, you know, in the world series again against the Braves. So, um, you know, this is kind of a, um, an interesting discussion to have on, on what it means for the Chicago Blackhawks in that 2010 cup legacy and, and for the organization, quite frankly, right? I mean, like, th- this is an organization. It's an original six organization seeing as the, 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 the class. I mean, this is, this is anecdotal, but I, I have friends that work within one in particular within the Blackhawks organization. And he was interviewing with them and 
you know, when he was working with another National Hockey League team at the time, he says they flew him out first class. They had a town car waiting at the airport. They, they just treated him top shelf. He said this was a top shelf organization when he interviewed with the Blackhawks. And now he's there working with them. Hmm. And it's a tough time to be working in the Blackhawks organization right now. What does it do for that brand? Right. What does this do for this fan base that right now is trying to process? I mean, these are these when you use, you know, when you talk about like a, a, a Jonathan Taves, he is revered. In the city of Chicago, he is revered by Blackhawks fans. Now you have to wonder how a lot of Hawks fans are feeling about these players. If indeed they did know about this and sat on it. Well, when you if you were to listen to that full interview with Beach, he actually said that he was um, heckled. He was there were slurs. Yeah. Um, uh, like homophobic slurs yeah. uh, from within the dressing room and on the ice. So it was very much in the interview. He said that people knew his teammates knew it was an open secret. And, you know, I can't necessarily say I have sympathy for the Blackhawks organization. This is self-made. No, nobody's looking for. I don't think anyone's looking to ascribe sympathy to it. I think it'll be. T- I think. It, I think that fans are going to have a really, really tough time reconciling. I mean, Jason's watching right now. He says he's got a Jonathan Taves Team Canada 2016 jersey, and he says it'll likely now never see the time of day. Right. So that that's one example. Heidi says I was willing to give Jonathan Taves some grace because he was also quite young at the time, but his response now as a full-blown adult with tons of experience in the NHL makes him a piece of shit, in my opinion, says, says Heidi. Uh, Fatima says they knew. Read the, read the report. Ticketing staff knew. Front staff knew. Like front of house staff in the arena. Sue says, I would go so far as to say that most pro sports are tainted. You know, there's gross amounts of money at stake. There's cover-ups and there's secrecy. Crazy Fast Daddy says Kane, Taves, Keith, they were all kids at the time. They were entwined in the culture. You can let me know what you think about this. Uh, Lisa says, I don't know if it mars their cup win in 2010, but it does mar the team and the organization as a whole, which is way worse. Troy wonders, didn't they already cross somebody somebody's name out on the cup? They did at the, at the request of the Chicago Blackhawks. The perpetrator here, Aldrich, has had his name removed from the stanley cup it's it's very short list people have had their names removed from the cup i believe former oilers owner peter pocklington's dad had his name removed from the cup if i remember correctly i remember that sort of got past the nhl and then somebody went back and said you can't have that name on the cup i I may be wrong on that story but it's very rare to have your name x'd off the stanley cup so, I, I I was interested to know like what would be the reason for that. I mean, I can understand Peter Pocklington getting yeah. ousted off of that cup because he traded Wayne Gretzky oh, away. Uh, Edmontonians and the trade—they're never going to get over the trade. Never. Um, you, you know what? Of course, I grew up in Calgary during that time. So when Wayne Gretzky was traded, it you was like, like if I was old enough, <laughs> if I was old enough, we would have been popping bottles. But I was not old enough. So, uh, yeah, here. So Peter Pocklington had his dad Basil's name put on the Stanley Cup and uh, something about it. I'm reading this live on the fly, so I don't want to do this, but a new band was created. Oh, yeah. So so his name was X'd out. His name was X'd out on the cup. And then, of course, the cup, as it grows, like as the years go on, they lose the rings. Right. And so 
anyway, I don't want to get too off track. We don't need to be talking about the Chicago Blackhawks here, but sometimes you got to tune into Real Talk to get to get the goods on all those side stories too. You know, it was interesting on our live chat. The minute that I asked Tara, and by the way, unfortunately, we've we've lost our signal. I'm not sure what happened there. Too bad. Um, thanks to Tara for joining us. We go way back, me and her. Um, she was hosting breakfast television in Calgary when I was hosting breakfast television in Edmonton. And uh, it's been amazing to see her career take off like it has. She's been doing some really great work uh, championing women in sport as well. And you can check out the great work that she does on Sportsnet, including the top of her game initiative. But as soon as I started asking Tara about the NHL commissioner and about Gary Bettman and about his future and about suggestions from some pretty high profile hockey commentators that maybe it's Bettman's time to go. Did you notice what happened in the chat? Everybody went, nah, he's made the owners a ton of money. He's made them a ton of dough. He's made a ton of money. And they're right. Every single real talker that said that is correct. And that's oftentimes been the thing with Gary Bettman is that they'll lock out players for a year. Right. Or they hold the hard line on something. And and Batman's always been a bit of a prick. Right. He's just very prickly. Like if he's got that kind of I'm not making fun of him. Like if it's like a physical thing, but I'm, he's, he's just a little twitchy and a little he, he, he's he's a little bit like Jason Kenny, Alberta Supreme. He's, he's just very twitchy and he doesn't like being challenged. He doesn't like when he doesn't like dissenting opinions. He doesn't like points of view that don't align with his. He talks down to people. He answers questions as though the person asking the question is a complete buffoon. It's just his style of leadership. And as people have been critical of Gary Bettman for things like a lockout, I mean, there's been at least two uh, work interruptions on his shift. Once the dust has settled and once time has passed, everyone has always simply said the owners ended up making more money. And who does he work for? The owners. And so guess who's going to keep him there? The owners. The ones that are calling the shots. I mean, they pay the guy almost 10 million bucks a year to do exactly what he's doing. So it'll be interesting to see what happens within the the leadership when it comes to the National Hockey League commissioner. You can send us your thoughts on this. Some random guy says it's actually kind of incredible how people can get away with being pricks as long as they have money. (laughs) He says Gary Bettman's an example. W. Brett Wilson is an example. (laughs) Yeah. Jason says Bettman would probably leave and, and, and then Bill Daly, the deputy commissioner, might move in, who's equally as prickish. Yeah, maybe not, though. Maybe not. Just because you're the deputy doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to get that next job. I suspect we may have a couple emails on this for trash talk. That's coming up on Friday. As you know, you can send us your thoughts anytime. You've got a rant. You've got to get off your chest. You'd like to hear it. You'd like this audience to hear it. You can send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Trash Talk is presented by the team at Local Waste. They've been keeping it local when it comes to construction, commercial, and residential waste and recycling collection for more than a quarter century. Family-owned and always growing. They're expanding their footprint across the prairies, and as more and more of those opportunities open up, we'll be sure to let you know where you can get in touch with Local Waste in your community. If you're in Edmonton or Alberta, you can give them a shout at 780-306-1282. If you're in Saskatchewan, give them a call through their Regina office to 306-992-9028. We also wanted to remind you that coming up soon, as a matter of fact, as early as Thursday, we're going to be announcing our new Real Talk Wine of the Month. But it's my pleasure to remind you that La Crema is our current partner. La Crema has been pushing out some of the best 
Pinot Noirs and Chardonnay. I mean, they're Russian River Chardonnay. That single vineyard Russian River Chardonnay, the Pinot, the Pinot Noir as well, uh, sort of the higher end one, you may say, has been getting rave reviews. These are vineyards from some of the top producing regions in Oregon and California. You can check them out, including their Best of the Holidays collection. A great time to consider gift giving at lacrema.com and ask for La Crema anywhere you get fine wines. This is a, a really interesting focus, and, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. How much do you know about the history of Muslims in North America? What might North America look like without contributions from Muslims? A good friend of this show, Omar Mualam, is receiving rave reviews for his new book, Praying to the West. He's an award-winning writer, a documentary filmmaker, and an educator. His book was recently named the best social sciences book of 2021 by Chapters Indigo. Dr. Amir Hussein is a Canadian Muslim, the chair of the theology department at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. He's a scholar of Islam in North America, vice president of the American Academy of Religion, and it's an honor to welcome both of them to real talk thanks for making time for us a good morning to you omar congratulations on the reviews and the buzz around the book you've got to be thrilled what prompted you to write it in the first place why was it so important for you to talk about how muslims shaped the americas well i think i just got kind of tired of the amount of ignorance around uh muslim people and uh the conflation of islam as as one sort of monolithic some you know often nefarious monolithic religion um and so you know i just i, I want to kind of embark on a journey partly for myself to understand the the diversity and uh, complexity of uh you know the second biggest uh, religion in the world. And I think that when people start to, uh, you know, when you enlighten people and they become more familiar with the history of minority communities in uh, wherever they live, and they understand the influences that those communities have on the things around them that maybe they haven't noticed before, I think that that kind of familiarity can kind of pick away at the ignorance and fear that feeds intolerance. Doctor, would you agree? I mean, with with regards to the encounters you've had, the anecdotes that, that you've been aware of. I mean, Omar talks about how frustrated he is with the, the misconceptions or the ignorance around it. Have you seen the same thing? Uh, absolutely. And a real pleasure to be on the, the show and to be uh, here with uh, Omar. I think his book is marvelous uh, there. You know, I grew up in Canada, came to Canada in 1970. And at that point, very, very small, you know, Muslim population. And you see the the shift over uh, 50 years uh, now. And absolutely, you have the, the misconceptions, the sort of ignorance. You know, Muslims have always been a part of the Americas. We can talk more about that. But we often don't know that that history. We think of all of us as sort of relative newcomers. You know, uh, many of us are, but many of us have been here literally for centuries. So we're, I mean, I'd love to just kind of open the floor here. Uh, to talk about the history. I mean, are, are we talking about, I mean, well, first of all, where do we want to start the conversation? I, I think I think when we're talking, especially in the context of reconciliation and some of the awareness that we've been having and some of the conversations we've been having recently, when we talk about North American history, we have to define where we want to yeah. start talking about it. Uh, Dr. Hussein, why don't you go first? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And you can see, you know, I don't know if you can see, see behind me, you know, the First Nations art that I that I have. Uh, I love the work of Robert Davidson. And, and you have to acknowledge, you know, the people that were here uh, uh, first long before we got here. But if you look at, you know, the uh, European uh, expansion to the Americas, the earliest documented Muslim that we have evidence of is uh, Estevanico the Moor, you know, uh, a slave brought by one of the Spanish conquistadors in 1528. So you think about that for a second. We're coming up on 500 years of a Muslim, you know, being in the Americas. You know, there's stories about West African kings, you know, uh, discovering uh, North America long before, discovering is wrong, you know, sailing to North America long before Columbus. We don't have evidence of that, but we do have evidence of like 1528 is the date you can say with certainty, you know, there's a Muslim that's here in the Americas. Well, and, and possibly earlier, right? So one of the most interesting things that I found uh, that I learned about uh, post-Columbian Americas um, is, uh, actually starts with the, with the Santa Maria, that uh, Columbus's interpreter was a Spanish Jew, uh, a Morisco, someone who was uh, forced to convert to Catholicism. And as the interpreter, he had to go, uh, you know, communicate with what he thought were the were Asian people, but were actually American indigenous people in Hispaniola. And the language that he spoke to those indigenous people was Arabic, right? So if you think about that for a moment, the first words passing between East and West are the, is, is Arabic, the sacred language of, of Islam. It starts to give you uh, an idea of just, you know, how soon it, uh, Islam may have had a presence here. And we also know that in 1492, you know, that there were, um, you know, this, this was sort of right after the Reconquista of Southern Spain. And so a lot of, you know, Moriscos, these Catholic people still probably had, you know, Islam in their hearts and minds. And some of them almost certainly sailed in Columbus's crew. And though we don't have documented evidence of that, there's a good chance that there were Muslims in the uh, in the West since 1492, making it as old to the West as any non-Indigenous faith. Is it fair uh, to say that that Muslims in North America in particular have through the relatively short history, as we understand it, been made to feel unwelcome or or is a phrase that people are using more, more often these days, I think, been othered. Omar, what do you think? Well, you know, I think uh, it's it's complex because it, it it really depends on the region and the ethnicity. And, you know, Islam is an intersectional like it's an it's an intersectional faith. And, um, you know, not all Muslim people are you know subject to the same level of oppression or even feel like they have been oppressed over the over the times. I mean, the first real Muslim communities in the West were enslaved Muslim Africans. Right. And so they were, you know, truly, uh, you know, uh, oppressed to, you know, to as, as oppressed as can be. But it wasn't necessarily because they were Muslim. It was because they were black. Now, with that being said, there were extra precautions around Muslim, uh, Muslim Africans. Um, they were seen as, you know, kind of prickly and, uh, you know, because a lot of them were literate, they would um, illiterate in Arabic, they would 
uh, often be able to communicate with each other and plan revolts. The first recorded revolt in the West was actually a Muslim-led revolt. Um, so this this actually led to what is kind of considered the first Muslim ban. Uh, this would have been, you know, the first decree against importing Muslims to the West was like 1522. So, you know, the, the there were extra precautions around them because of that. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why Islam was... Uh, like there, there was an extra effort exerted to erase Islam because it was seen as such a threat to Catholicism. And it's one of the reasons why there were as many as 3 million Muslim people here, you know, before the, the 1800s through enslaved Africans. And yet there is almost no evidence, no, like no evidence of that, of that community around us. It is uh, it's almost hidden. You find it in, you know, little subtle cultural things and in, in some of the black religions in the Caribbean or South America. Uh, but mostly you find it in the inspiration that it would later pass on to, you know, black Muslim converts, such as from the Nation of Islam, for example. Doctor, you're in an interesting position. I mean, I, I want to pick up on what Omar just talked about and, and the perceived threat to Catholicism that was or that is islam i mean you're talking to us i mean you're you know you're you're the chair of the theology department at a jesuit university you come to this from a pretty interesting perspective no i, I absolutely and so it's it's a, it's a real privilege i mean it shows uh, the changes in the catholic church you know since the second vatican council in 1965 where they really opened up dialogue particularly to jews and now more so with with muslims but absolutely omar's right that there's that there's been that history of conflict you know in the medieval period it really was the sort of christian world versus the the muslim world and so you have those negative stereotypes that get built long before uh, we come here to the americas and omar's absolutely right if you look at the diversity of Muslims, like here, I, I've lived in the U.S. now for 25 years. You know, a quarter of us are African American, a third of us are people like me, South Asian. You know, happen to be born in Pakistan. A third are people who are Middle Eastern, but Middle Eastern in Los Angeles could mean Iranian as much as it could mean uh, Arab. And so you have this huge diversity. And then one other thing is, even in the contemporary period, we see this huge. Um, uh, division among Muslims. What I mean by that is about a third of American Muslims are people like me, you know, who are relatively wealthy, who are educated, doctors, lawyers, engineers. 40% of American Muslims live below the poverty level. And we don't think about that. You know, we, we don't think about the, the working class uh, African-American kids in the hood. We don't think about like in Orange County, there's Cham Muslims from Cambodia because we forget that, you know, when Islam spread out, it came out to what is now Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and you've got indigenous issues uh, you've got uh, Muslims from there who came here so you've got you know just as much chance of running into a, a working class Muslim who may be uh, stereotyped or oppressed because they're poor as you do a wealthy Muslim who's a doctor who's got complete privilege Omar what with regards to putting your book together uh, praying to the West how Muslims shaped the Americas Obviously, you wanted to address uh, a certain degree of ignorance or naivety that you saw all around you. What has the response been uh, to your book? What, what, have been, what have been a couple of reviews or maybe a couple of readers uh, reaching out to you and commenting? What's really struck you about how your book has landed? 
Well, you know, my, my book is a historical narrative, but it's also a contemporary story as well about how, you know, uh, Muslim communities today are sort of grappling with this, this uniquely, uh, this unique moment where, you know, anti-Muslim hate has, has uh, at least for one wing of the West been, been very mainstreamed. Um, so the response that I'm getting is, uh, is, I guess I'm hearing from a lot of millennial and uh, and second generation, third generation Muslim American Canadians who feel seen in this book um, because, you know, they they are sort of born and they, they sort of exist sometimes in the middle between, you know, the, the hyphen of Muslim Canadian or Muslim American or whatnot. Um, and so this book, uh, I guess, shows the diversity of practices and just how big of an umbrella it is and that there's there's always, you know, room and space for people to claim Islam on their own terms. And for, you know, uh, for, for a lot of second generation or, or further uh, Muslims that that's been maybe a little bit of a struggle where they feel a little bit disconnected from the faith of their parents or their community or, you know, struggle to reconcile it with the West. But this book shows just like how compatible Islamic values and Western values truly are. And, and the argument that I make in the book um, that might be somewhat, you know, controversial to people is that Islam is you know, a Western religion, by the definition that we typically use for Western religion, that's what it is. Muhammad and his first followers prayed toward Jerusalem before they prayed toward Mecca. They, you know, they read the Torah before the Quran was written. They were truly looking toward Western religions as a foundation for for Islam. And, you know, I think that something readers are taking to is just the commonalities between Islam and, and Christianity. And, uh, you know, that's something I wanted to to uh, emphasize a lot in, in this book. Uh, doctor, uh, when, when you published your book back in 2016, Muslims in the Making of America, uh, how would you describe how that book impacted conversation in the United States and, and around North America? And would you or have you perceived any difference in the climate or the, or the culture with regards to the, the context of this conversation present day, five years later? Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And so, you know, I wanted to write that book when President Obama, one of his first uh, speeches outside of America, you know, in June of, of 2009 was in Cairo. He spoke in sort of the heart of the Arab Muslim world and talked about some of the history of Islam in America. And I thought, hey, most Americans don't know this history of the kinds of things that American Muslims have, have done, you know. Uh, and then, of course, you get caught up in a bunch of other things. Uh, work takes over. This great idea sort of sits on the shelf. And then in 2015, 2016, you had then candidate Donald Trump, who said very famously to Anderson Cooper, you know, I think Islam hates us. I'm thinking, oh, this is a shift now. Now you've got a man who's, you know, the Republican uh, uh, candidate who said, I think Islam hates us. And so it was like, OK, we have to get this this out here. And part of it was um, I worked with Baylor University Press, you know, which is a Baptist press in Waco. And part of the reason was their distribution network was to folks who might not pick up the book had it been published by, let's say, Oxford University Press or University of California Press to reach out to folks. And I'm not saying that, that, that there isn't the prejudice um, uh, among Islam, among liberals. It, it, it's, it's there across the board. But to be able to put this out there and to say to folks, look, here are some of the contributions in really interesting kinds of anecdotal ways that Muslims have made to what it means to be uh, American. And I think that was really uh, interesting for, for people to get a sense of, oh, 
I didn't think about this. Oh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Right. That guy was a Muslim. Oh, Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, Ali, Ali yeah. died in 2016. <laughs> and that was it. Like, you know, that funeral, like I was, I was listening on Fox News to the live broadcast. I'm thinking, okay, this is the first time I've ever heard Fox News broadcast like a, a Muslim prayer, a Muslim funeral, the call to prayer, all that kind of stuff, because it's Muhammad Ali. It's the greatest of all time. And we think about, you know, when he died, he's sort of this kindly old man. In 1967, Americans didn't much care from, you know, when he won the heavyweight title against Sonny Liss and then declared A, he was a Muslim and B, was changing his name to Muhammad Ali. He was reviled when he mm-hmm. refused to stand for induction in world in um, the Vietnam War in 67. You know, that was that was just not something that, that one did. And so, you know, to see that kind of change or this person who was incredibly controversial be this beloved figure, uh, you know, and think, oh, yeah, that guy was a Muslim. And he always, you know, made his name really as a, uh, a Muslim, but we don't think about that. That's a great. A lot of journalists refused to, to use his name, Muhammad Ali. They continue to call him Cassius Clay to his face, even when he protested. That's how reviled he was. Yeah, it's and it, I mean, those are great points. And, and sometimes I think that pop culture or sports, I mean, we've just had a conversation unrelated, but maybe in a way related about the complicated relationships people have with athletes as heroes with regards to, you know, cover-ups within the Chicago Blackhawks organization. People have interesting relationships with celebrities and athletes. Oh, absolutely. And I was jo- joking with your producer, but I was serious to think like, you know, like how much has Nazem Kadri done for like Muslims in America in a way that, you know, like Mabina Jaffer is like the first Muslim senator. Folks who may not even remember that, you know, we've had a, a Muslim, not the Ottawa senator, the real senators, you know, uh, in Canada. But, you know, if you've got a Muslim NHL player, like, you know, when I speak to Muslim audiences, I always say, look, you know, the as immigrants, we want our kids to succeed and success means you're a doctor a lawyer, an engineer, a business owner, and there is no fifth option. Well, we have lots of doctors and lawyers and engineers. We need the writers. We need the artists. We need the athletes. Like, you know, how many people uh, learn about Islam because like their favorite hip hop artists, like most of the guys in Wu-Tang Clan are Muslim. You know, Dave Chappelle's a Muslim. Like, you know, it's that kind of thing that, you know, the uh, the the culture. And in Canada, yeah. that really is hockey. So, so, so I am actually quite serious to think, you know, Forget about his history in the playoffs, but, you know, what has Nazem Kadri done to sort of elevate, you know, the Muslim profile in a way that me as an academic or uh, 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 Nahid Nenshi in Calgary as the mayor may not be able to do. Yeah, Yeah, you know, pop culture plays a a huge role in in not just educating um, non-Muslim people about like the Muslim presence here, um, but actually Muslim people as well. I mean, growing up as a uh, in northern Alberta in High Prairie, we were one of like just a handful of Muslim families there. There was no mosque in town. You know, there was this is pre-internet. So really my like my understanding of what it meant to be a Muslim came from pop culture. And, you know, a lot of that was really negative. I mean, I, I have some pretty vivid, awful memories of watching like, you know, um, uh, not without my daughter, that awful Sally Field movie or, um, you know, what's, uh, what's the, the siege or whatever true lies that those kinds of stuff, or even like back to the future, right. Starts with some, I was some just going to crazy the Libyans. Like, yeah. Like it is like yeah. completely frivolous. Like it's just a lazy plot device 
to to scare the bejesus out of people like i ah, just throw in some some freaky muslims in there yeah um but you know thankfully there was also like spike lee's malcolm x there was also like two thirds of a tribe called quest. Um, there was, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson. And honestly, like if it wasn't for black Americans and their place in, in pop culture, um, you know, a lot of like a lot of Muslim youth like myself uh, would feel, I think, even more like alienated in in the worlds that we grew up in because they were our windows to, you know, um, success and influence and, and just like being like being seen and mattering, uh, you know, as a, as a Muslim people. One of West. our uh, one one of our uh, valued audience members, Fatima, uh, tunes in almost every morning and leaves these really thoughtful comments. Um, you know, she says, "I hate that we have to show off our contributions." to prove that we have a place in the West. And I'm looking forward to the time that that won't be necessary. We represent our faith, but we shouldn't have to. Doctor, I can tell that resonated with you. No, I, I, absolutely. And, 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 you know, when you were talking with uh, Omar about the West, it's like, yeah, the West wouldn't be the West without Muslim contributions. I mean, you just think about like the numbers, you know, now, now the Arabs stole them fair and square from, you know, people in India, but at least they put their name on them. And so the fact that we use Arabic numbers, you know, the whole mathematical kinds of things, you know, the contributions to science, but reason, rationality, like what, one of my great teachers at, at U of T, I went to U of T for all my degrees, was the blessed Michael Mamura, this wonderful Palestinian Christian uh, philosopher, and he really made his mark on on how the m medieval Muslims really didn't just translate and transmit the Greek uh, intellectual tradition; they really transformed it and, and shaped that. And so, so much of who we are in the West is, is part of of the fact that that Islam has been entwined in this, but we haven't seen that. And, and, and Fatima is mm -hmm. absolutely right that you know it, you you hope that we can say, yeah, we're part of the society. We've been part of this. Uh, society, but we always have to keep sort of claiming that that place, like like any minority group. And and, and I want to be careful here because you know the, what we're talking about is Muslims can be said for you know the Chinese being excluded. In my yeah. office, I have a poster of this the stamp from the Komagatu uh, Maru, you know the 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 ship uh, with the Sikhs coming to to Vancouver that was denied boarding, even though these were perfectly fine citizens of the British Empire, but they happen to be brown and turbaned, you know. And so we we have this history, you know, here That's that we're right. dealing with. And like, you know, so with with all of that being said, like the the ability of Muslim people to participate had been severely restricted for decades and decades. Um, I mean, there's a reason why the first recorded mosque in Canada was was an Albanian mosque and why the first, you know, uh, purpose built mosque, the Al Rashid in Edmonton was a was a uh, Lebanese mosque because they were they were basically seen as as white people. Right. And so you don't you had some black and brown uh, African and, and, you know, South Asian Muslim people um, uh, in the West at that time, but they weren't really allowed to flourish until after the 1960s and 70s. And what was that like, you know, that policy change in immigration in both Canada and the U.S. was all about, you know, it's, you know, it's the way that it is described is as a moving toward a merits based system or skills based system um, that was no longer, you know, privileging white and European people. And that's true. But what it was also is a uh, it was seen as an opportunity by the United States and Canada to um, 
you know, to upgrade their, their, uh, their, their STEM, right? Like their, their sciences and medicine. And basically they were trying to take the best and brightest from wherever they could find them in the world, um, in order to, you know, uh, be, the, the Russians to the moon or to, you know, impart Medicare in the United States. And so, you know, from the perspective of those countries, this is like one of the, this is the beginning of the great brain drain. Um, and we don't like, we don't think of it as a, as an attempt to actually improve Canada and the United States intellectually or scientifically, but that's kind of what it was about. I've never heard. I mean, with regards to the Al Rashid Mosque, I know that that uh, uh, in particular, uh, Muslims living in Alberta are are extremely proud of of that mosque's history. Omar, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I, th- I believe it's a hundred years old. Uh, it's the oldest mosque in Canada. If not I believe. quite, not quite. Coming up on a hundred years. Yeah. But but Sam, can we put that picture up again? Because I've never heard anyone, Omar, like you just did, talk about the architecture of it. And and now that I'm looking at the photo, you're right. It does. I mean, it essentially resembles. An Anglican church, right? Yeah. Or, or or a United Church or any other or Methodist, yeah. It's, Methodist it's church. actually it's you know it's a bit of a mashup, right? So you know the it's been it's been described as as possibly like uh, a Methodist church because of the domes look very much like that. But of course, domes exist in Islamic architecture, but the the size of those domes are very similar to that. The, um, and the architect himself, I believe was, it was a Methodist. Um, so it might have something to do with that. And then if you look at the roof, that like very gabled roof, that's just a very typical prairie roof. That's just practical for snowfall to like, you know, fall, <laughs> fall off of the edges like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is, uh, it's dis- it's uniquely Canadian in that it is a mashup of all, you know, all these various cultures, um, that, it, that exist here. I've got an interesting question from Rose, uh, Dr. Hussein, maybe I'll put it to you first. Uh, she says, I-, I wonder how awful it must've been when nine 11 happened, and the entire world seemed to to turn on an entire culture. I mean, yeah. do you want to no, do you want to approach I, that from a personal perspective or, sure, or, or yeah. broaden the focus? No, and I, and I can start personally and move broader. So I moved to Los Angeles in 1997. So I was teaching at Cal State Northridge in the San Fernando Valley. So to Monday, September the 10th, 2001, I'm teaching a, a night class. I go home, I turn on sports center, like I want to do and, you know, watch the, the sports and go to bed, you know, Tuesday morning, you know, uh, September 11th is a Tuesday, like five, five 30 in the morning. I get a call from a friend going, wake up, wake up, turn on your TV. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and you hang up two minutes later, he calls back and like, okay, something's going on. You turn on the TV and it's sports center, except it's not sports center. It's the ABC news feed. And you see the horrors. Uh, the first tower's already been hit. The second tower goes down and you have that moment of, wait, did I just see that first tower go down? No, that first tower's already gone down. This is the second tower that's gone down. I, I grew up in Toronto. I have friends who worked in that building, including a, a friend who was there uh, most days, you know? And so my first thought is like, are my friends still alive you know the cell phones weren't working all that kind of thing i I didn't find out till that night that he was okay and and he was like this you know uh uh, indian meaning from india kid from uh timmins you know and uh, once you realize what happened my first thought to him was keep your head down because they don't know 
you know, you're this brown Indian guy. We know that it's been, you know, the, these uh, Muslim terrorists who've done this, you know, keep your head down, uh, be careful. And so that that huge sense of loss, because, of course, this was, you know, where I'd been living for four years. And you see, you know, 3,000 people killed, including Muslims. I mean, uh, more Muslims died in that attack than the 19 terrorists and hijackers that, you know, did that. And it was just awful. And then all of a sudden, it's as if you are sympathizing with the hijackers and not the the people who those hijackers have targeted, which is you, you know, and, and that was the really difficult part. And it took... I mean, the the nice part about it was I would do like a talk on Islam and Muslims maybe once every two or three months pre-9-11. Post-9-11, it was every couple of days. I'm not, I want to tell one story and I'll stop. The, the most moving thing happened to me very early on. So this is on a Tuesday. On a Thursday, I get a phone call from uh, a minister saying, hey, you know, I, I'm a minister at a, at a uh, Methodist church, actually, you know, just not that far away. Could you come talk to our congregation on Sunday? And I'm like, pastor, I'm a little busy. There's a lot of stuff going on. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't explain myself. My name's Ray Mizuki. I'm Japanese American. My congregation is mostly Japanese American. Post Pearl Harbor, almost no non-Japanese stood up for us. We want to make sure that we stand up with you mm-hmm. and for you. So will you come and help us? And 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 that moved me literally to to tears. And I have no doubt that the reason that American Muslims weren't interned, you know, post 9-11 was precisely because Japanese Americans were interned, you know, after Pearl Harbor and all the work that was done by the Japanese American community. So that that sense of coming together was so powerful. And then you know, you had the Friday was the sort of national day of, of prayer. Friday also happens to be the congregational day of prayer for Muslims, you know, and so in the mosque talking about this. But yeah, and then you saw the the hatred, the violence, as, as if we were supporting the terrorists and not the people that were targeted by the terrorists. I'm going to say something I never thought I'm going, you know, I would say before, but we have to give some credit to George W. Bush, president, former president George W. Bush, um, terribly incompetent president um, done, you know, you know, his his fault that the, the Middle East has unraveled in the way that it has today. But to his credit, after 9-11, what did he do? He foresaw the possibility of uh, anti-Muslim hate and went out there to say it is a religion of peace, that we are not at war with Muslim people, and basically went out there to preemptively defend uh, Muslim Americans. Now, in a way, he was speaking out of both sides of his face because we all know what was happening, you know, secretly with the Patriot Act and with uh, with surveillance of Muslim people. Um, but when you contrast that with, with, uh, with President Donald Trump, uh, 14, 15 years later, and you see how he he stoked those fears. You know, it wasn't just the Muslim ban that he proposed. People forget that he proposed a Muslim registry, right? Um, like, who would have thought that in 2015, 2016, we would be, there would be a, a, a state leader in the Western world contemplating that in public, proposing that. And that that kind of well and behavior. omar let's not let's not give a pass to canada either i mean the the conservatives no. in 2015 campaigned on a barbaric cultural Absolutely. practices hotline and, 
And, and that, and that's absolutely true. Right. So, you know, at the same time that uh, president Trump was campaigning, we also have Stephen Harper and the twilight of the Harper administration, which went full bigot, right. You know, they were, uh, you know, there was the barbaric cultural practices hotline gimmick. There was the, the phony Birkaban that they used to stoke fears. There was also proposals to make it possible to, um, you know, to uh, uh, revoke the Canadian citizenship of, of dual citizens. I'm a dual citizen. You know, I was born in this country, uh, but I also have citizenship in Lebanon. Um, and, you know, because, you know, because of that, that policy, I would have, you know, there is feasibly, uh, you know, a possibility that I, I could be un-Canadian uh, or made to be un-Canadian. Um, and we all know who this was targeting and what this was all about. So, yes, I mean, I don't, uh, and and I think that, for those same reasons, at that same time, you started to see, I started to see personally, more Islamophobia in this country because of the social license that was given by people like Stephen Harper or by Donald Trump. Um, you know, we were talking about 9-11 and, and how you know traumatizing that must have been. I think people in America and people in Canada had very different experiences. I certainly did. Growing up in a northern Alberta conservative community, you would think that after 9-11, that it would be a really difficult time for myself and my family. I can tell you it was not, hmm. right? There was, life did not change that much. Uh, I don't remember ever feeling ostracized. Our, our business, our home was never vandalized. Uh, you know, there was some reasons for that. The Lebanese people have been, uh, are pretty well established in this province. Um, our family was pretty well established in that town, but it, it honestly, it's not, you know, what you think. Fast forward 14 years later, I'm living in Edmonton now, one of the most diverse cities in Canada. And in one year, I had three encounters with random white dudes saying Islam Islamophobic things to me. Right. That had not I, I don't recall that happening in High Prairie where I grew up, right, right, even after 9-11. So what was the difference? Well, they felt emboldened. They felt emboldened by public figures. Um, you know, thankfully, the you know, thankfully, there is uh, currently in Canada, the U.S., no public figures that are um, or rather no. Um, I mean, we have Maxime Bernier, but I mean, no state leaders rather who are doing what Stephen Harper and and uh, Trump had done. But in a way, I feel like the the tone that those two state leaders had set is still with us today especially with the tone that that Donald Trump had set. And I th and I think that it would be foolish to assume that the perspectives that the, the discrimination and the attitudes that were not just tolerated, uh, but but the flames that were fanned uh, by the political examples that you've provided and many others. I don't think that those have gone away. I don't think that, for example, in the United States, that on January 7th, the day after the insurrection at the Capitol, that all of a sudden everything sorted itself out. And, and now Joe Biden has brought America together and that Justin Trudeau has created a utopia in Canada. So I'm curious, uh, before we wrap this conversation, I know we could talk for another three hours, but, but for both of your assessment on present day, and moving forward, uh, doctor, maybe you first on, on, on your assessment today yeah. and, and where you'd like to see this conversation and action go. Yeah, no. And, and, and uh, before I forget, thank you, Ryan, for this. It's been a wonderful opportunity mm -hmm. to be on, on the show, a real privilege uh, here. And 
I think, you know, in a funny way, I was smiling when you were talking about some of this, because if you look at most Muslims, and I'm stereotyping here, but many of us tend to be actually conservative, you know, mm-hmm. fiscally conservative, socially conservative, you know, leaning more to the conservative party in Canada, the Republican party in the U.S. than, than to the Democrats and liberals. But you're, but, you're, but you're not recruited, you know, by those uh, uh uh, uh, parties there, and so it's a really fascinating kind of thing. So, I, I, I think for me, the the hope is that you know the best thing we can do as as Muslims, whether we're in Canada or the U.S., is to live out our lives, you know, as, as Muslims, and to be able to contribute to the society and show those kinds of things. So it's you know Omar as an author, it's me as an academic, it's someone else as a, a cardiologist, someone else as a factory worker, and you say, hey that guy's my neighbor, that lady is, you know, my kid's teacher, and they're decent, kind, you know, uh, uh, people. And I think that that's the kind of thing that you hope for. And part of it, and I, uh, I'm very conscious, again, when I, when I speak to Muslim audiences, say, look, we need to tell our stories. You know, part of the reason that we have these misrepresentations in the media is that we don't encourage our kids to go into the media. You know, if we had Muslim writers, newscasters, artists, filmmakers, directors, you know, actors, that's where you begin to change the perception. But for the rest of us, I think, you know, we live out our lives as best we can and and use that as the example. I think we we are starting to see some more equitable representation when it comes to to, to journalists and news anchors and talk show hosts. Doctor, you make a great point. You also open up the door for me to shamelessly celebrate and promote Omar's film, The Last Baron, the (laughs) improbable story of how the burger baron went rogue and became a Lebanese dream. If people find it, you can easily find it on Indiegogo, indiegogo Indiegogo.com, where Omar, you're uh, crowdfunding, uh, getting this film in front of as many people as, as possible. Well, obviously, I was waiting until oh, I could. I was going to pick, pick my shot. There you go. It just went up. This is the real talk effect for this muscle <laughs> filmmaker. That's right. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, people can watch the TV version of it on CBC Gem for free. Um, and uh, and uh, we're crowdfunding to, to make a feature film. But yeah, I mean, it, it is essentially about that that sort of hidden influence of, of racialized communities uh, around us, whether they be Muslim or, you know, or Christian or Druze. But we don't think about uh, how, you know, how important they've been to some of our, our national and regional uh, institutions including fast food. Um, but uh, if, I, if I can just add a, a couple more things to that, that sort of last thought about, um, you know, what we can be doing going forward. Um, I think that it's uh, one thing that gives me hope is Muslim people are becoming a lot more uh, politically uh, active and a lot more active in, in uh, civic life. And, uh, you know, for decades, there were uh, Muslim people have been a rather apathetic voting bloc, um, you know, ironically, George W. Bush won the presidency because he he reactivated them and Muslim Americans got <clears throat> behind him in 2000 and really paid the price for that. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm seeing a lot of like millennial and younger Muslim people get involved. They're allying with uh, with, uh, you know, black empowerment groups, with LGBT groups, uh, with other liberal causes, which as uh, you know, as Amir pointed out, there's some irony to it because Muslim values tend to be more conservative. But uh, you know, this is this is true allyship. This is seeing the bigger picture. Um, so that that is something that that gives me hope, and I want to see more of because the challenges ahead of us 
nationally and globally are immense. I mean, we didn't talk about uh, Bill 21 in Quebec. We didn't talk about this massive, disgusting discrimination in Quebec. And the fact that our political leaders, uh, the party leaders, don't they don't want to handle this seriously because they're afraid of losing Quebec votes. Right. So they are they are basically giving a free pass to human discrimination for their own, uh, you know, for their own gain. But we also have concentration camps of Uyghur Muslims in China, Mm -hmm. a million to three million people. I mean, we were told it was drilled into our head. Never like never forget, never forget, never forget. And we forgot it is happening right now. So, you know, I think we just need to keep talking about it. Non-Muslim, Muslim, we have to keep, you know, sharing these stories on, on social media. Yes, it's it's cheap activism, but at least it is heightening people's awareness. Um, and we just, you know, we need to take an interest in how these these uh, discriminations um, all over the world are, are impacting real human lives. I knew this was going to be a great conversation. I knew that you were going to bring. I mean, you know, Sarah Hoyles puts these interviews together and gives me a list of suggested questions. But I just knew that both of you were going to make such important points to consider and take this conversation in in directions that we could not plot out. And I'm so grateful uh, for your time and your perspective here. Dr. Amir Hussein is the author of Muslims in the Making of America. He's the chair of the theology department at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. You know, Amir, back in the day as a young boy, I always wanted I wanted to play college basketball at either Loyola Marymount or UCLA. And anybody that knows me knows that I didn't get even close to that. Omar Mualam is an award winning writer, a filmmaker and an educator. You can check out his new book, Praying to the West, How Muslims Shape the Americas, as mentioned. Chapters Indigo says it's the best social sciences book of 2021 and at Indiegogo.com. You can contribute to supporting to crowdfund the full feature length Last Baron, the feature documentary. You can find out more by following Omar on Twitter. Thanks for this, gentlemen. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Real pleasure to be with you. Real Talkers, uh, I I really appreciate what uh, those of you have had to say in the live chat. And I know that when this podcast drops that we're going to have a whole lot more feedback here. Uh, You know, Tanya says Omar's 100 percent bang on, says we ignore so many things for politically expedient reasons. Isn't that the case? I mean, Omar talking about Bill 21, we, we, we do an entire feature on that. Of course, it came up again in the most recent federal election. And boy, if you ever want to see a federal party leader, I'm not I'm talking about all of them. If you ever want to see a federal party leader dance, you ever want to see him tap dance around a question, a direct question, ask him about Bill 21 in, in Quebec. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to learn about animals as friends in the wild. This is all based on a remarkable little clip a video clip that was tweeted out by our guest who's an evolutionary ecologist that coming up in just a moment but first we wanted to remind you that if you or your family are headed off uh, you got to get out of here you want to head somewhere hot you know you're you're double vaccinated you deserve a break why not consider non-stop service from edmonton's international airport to san diego this winter a direct flight No layovers, no extra time spent in transit. If you're headed to San Diego, California, or heck, anywhere else, why not park your money in the bank and park your car at JetSet? If you go to JetSetParking.com, click on the EIA link. You can book your parking spot for any travel before the end of 2022 for just $8 a day if you use the promo code 
real talk. Now, you've got to do it with at least 24 hours before you travel. Don't do it as you're pulling into the airport like I did a couple weeks ago. Damn it. I missed the deal. I thought, how bad of an endorsement is this that I missed the deal because I left it to the last minute. I said, I have to make sure I tell real talkers about this. You got to get into it 24 hours in advance. But again, any travel over the next 13 months to the end of 2022, $8 a day parking with the promo code REALTALK at jetsetparking.com. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Kubi Energy. We've been focusing a lot on the agricultural applications of solar energy, how, how Jake's teams in BC and Alberta have been spending a lot of time on farms recently, putting in these solar panels on barns, maybe even keeping the outdoor water sources unfrozen for the animals through the winter months, all kinds of different ways that solar can contribute to your operation. It's the same with commercial applications. It's the same in industrial parks and, of course, residential work, a ton of it being done by the team at Kubi. You can get your free quote today at kubienergy.ca and don't forget the team at Kubi Energy presenting positive reflections. If you had a random act of kindness, something that just made your day, we'd love to hear about it in an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com and of course, stay tuned for positive reflections coming up this next Monday. Well, before we get to our next guest, we should probably tee up this video. Uh, I'll describe it if I can for for people that are listening on the podcast, although there's a very good chance you may have already seen this. Uh, Sam, why don't we take a look at the tweet, first of all? So this is this is the tweet uh, that Dr. Cuddy pushed out. And, and, and this is, uh, I mean, absolutely amazing, says it's so lovely to see this friendship described in Native American stories caught on camera. Uh, yes, their friendship is is the stuff of, of love rooted in close observation of natural history and animal behavior uh, by indigenous people still being so-called discovered by ecologists. Now, if you roll the video, you see a badger. Badgers are so cool. And a coyote walking together through the forest in tandem making their way across over a log down a game trail, as they're called, a badger and a coyote. Interesting pals. Well, maybe not. Maybe not that far out of the norm. Not just the stuff of Disney movies. <laughs> Dr. Medusinan uh, Cuddy is an associate professor in the, in the Chancellor's Faculty Excellence Program for Leadership in the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources at North Carolina State University. Uh, the evolutionary ecologist teaches decolonizing science, decolonizing science. Engaging students in the public to study how human activity and rapid environmental changes impact biodiversity. What a fascinating area of study. Dr. Cuddy, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us today. Sure. Thank you for inviting me. This is, this is a pleasure to be here. I, I watched that video on loop like about 15 times. First of all, because you don't often see a badger, let's be honest. And, and second of all, to see a badger and yep. a coyote just, just hanging out together. But it's also your note that this is not new. This is not a revelation to indigenous no, storytellers. Take us into this. Yeah, it's not new. And in fact, even on Twitter, this is the second time that I've seen a video of these two animals together that has sort of gone a little bit viral. Uh, I saw this shared around, just to clarify, the videos, I'm not connected to the video except as somebody who shared it with a little context. But uh, several years ago, there was another video, which I've also included in my Twitter thread, uh, taken 
you know, it was an infrared sort of night night camera video of placed at a culvert under a, a highway overpass, I think, somewhere in Northern California. And that shows a coyote first, you know, in the camera frame, it's sort of hopping around excitedly and it, it it's trying to draw in his friend. Uh, so it jumps around and, and pulls in this badger who then trots behind the coyote. So it's looking at these two videos and the way they are interacting, it's hard to avoid concluding that they are friends, right? Even though as a scientist, I'm trained not to use words like friendships. We talk about, you know, uh, transactional relationships. That's how science sort of operates in this. We talk about symbiosis or, uh, you know, cooperative behavior, hunting, things like that. So this is something that obviously, you know, as scientists, we are studying and these cameras allow us to look more at these kinds of behaviors that are hard to see. But a lot of this kind of knowledge exists in indigenous communities. People have been living with other animals, other creatures in natural environments for a long time. And as human beings, we are all, we, we are not that different in terms of our innate curiosity about nature. So we all pay attention to creatures that we see around us, especially, you know, other mammals are particularly attractive to us. Who doesn't love watching badgers and coyotes, right? Yeah. I mean, you might get annoyed if they, if they get into your backyard and, you know, do, dig up your yard or something like that. But generally, they're all cute to watch and people have been doing that for, for thousands of years. So obviously many people who lived on the land notice this kind of behavior and have stories and they've become part of their lore. But just because it's not part of sort of the scientific published literature, ecologists don't weigh that, that storytelling and that tradition as equally as, as scientific information. And that's something that I've been trying to challenge with my challenge to ecologists to, to start decolonizing our work well i've been i've been so intrigued uh by this conversation i mean looking forward to it because it yeah. almost sounds to me uh to be incongruous to say we've got to decolonize science because you would say well science yes. should be based on evidence and evidence should not be impacted by the force of colonization as an example but obviously put into practice that's not been the case yeah, that's not been the case. And and in fact, if you look at the history of science, science has always been an instrument of power and has been aligned or in some cases in opposition to power, right? If you, we have the famous stories of like Galileo taking on the, the Catholic Church and, you know, those conflicts between religion and science that were at the start of the Renaissance and, and you know, the, the history before that of how religious authorities suppressed scientific knowledge. So we, we tend to think about those as heroes who opposed power. But at the same time, if you look at a lot of the development of science, historically, science has been aligned with, with political power in many ways. Uh, most importantly, because science, especially even now, where a lot of science is expensive to do, science depends on funding. In the past, it used to be patronage. Uh, you know, from royal families or, or other rich people, then it became sort of governments. Now, to some extent, we're also back to some extent to patronage from the billionaires who are funding things like space research and so on. So science has never been independent of power structures in society. And that's something that as scientists, when we are trained, we are never exposed to that context in which science is conducted. And that's one of the things that I'm, I'm challenging is that we need to understand, we need to pay attention to where we stand with respect to the power structures in society and where those come from. So if you think about, you know, Darwin 
who's you know one of my heroes intellectual heroes who you know came up with the theory of uh, natural evolution by natural selection his his uh, contemporary alfred russel wallace who's less talked about he also came up simultaneously with the same theory and that's been the basis for a lot of you know, all of modern biology in the last 160 some years but both of them they were both explorers who traveled the world and made collections of various animals all around the world there are regions of the world and there are various species of animals and plants that are named after darwin or wallace because they were the ones who went out and collected these things in south america and in uh, southeast asia and so forth and you know this was great work done by them and, and they're both heroes of mine but they were able to do this because they were able to travel on british naval vehicles vessels across the oceans that were doing surveys of the empire so this is similar to you know if if you know the movie uh, master and commander which is this great based on the on the maritime kind of novels that has a a character who's essentially like a darwin you know stand in a biologist who goes on this trip and it's a, it's a naval mission essentially but the even the ability to go and do these explorations that then enabled them to come up with the most transformative theories in science was because they were part of the empire and they had the power and the means to be able to go and conduct these this research why so do, why do you don't separate that context yeah well i'm just curious to know why be, uh, galileo yeah. obviously who is who is can I say proven to be correct? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly paid the price, though, <laughs> right? Like you said, yes. for for defying the Catholic Church. I mean, it was heresy. It was blasphemy. His theories yes. at the time. Uh, what changed over? And and gosh, I'm going to expose myself for not having the right. I'm I'm not a historian, Doc. But what was it? A couple of <laughs> couple of hundred years between Galileo and and, and Darwin, <laughs> approximately. Yeah. Uh, what changed? Uh-huh. I, I mean, because you can't tell me that Charles Darwin's theory of evolution doesn't fly in the face of or contradict oh. the Genesis story of creation, right? Yes. Oh yeah, it, it does certainly, and I, and there is still active resistance to Darwin's theory of evolution. Sure. Even now, in the U.S., there are organized forces uh, with a fair amount of capital behind them who are opposing the teaching of evolution in in public schools, for example. So it's not that that opposition has gone away. It's just I think by the time he came along, a lot of the other scientific discoveries. Had fueled the, the you know technological revolution as well. So you had the industrial revolution, which also you know came along with imperial expansion and the Europeans essentially conquering the rest of the world, which then had elevated the position of this kind of science in society in general. And Darwin himself never actually sort of published in the in what we call the peer-reviewed literature. Now, you know, he wrote books that were meant for everybody, and his book was a bestseller. And uh, and so and he was even when he was traveling around the world on his on his five year voyage, he was talking to scientists constantly in Europe. So there was definitely a, a science was in a much stronger position at that point in terms of government and official support and sanction for it. And and again, I, I'm not a historian of religion or politics in that sense. I'm an ecologist, but my sense is that by the time Darwin was doing this work uh, in the in the 19th century. The relative power dynamics between church and state were were different than they were during Galileo's time. Hmm. We'd had more of a separation between church and state, so you had less of that religious opposition. But it does still persist; it's not gone away. 
I, I mean, really, I, I don't want to go off on a big tangent here, but I mean, if you want to start yep. talking about how religion and science are, I won't say intertwined, but oftentimes butt heads. I mean, yep. look, I mean, look right now at like where a lot of the pushback on masks and vaccines are coming from. Yes. Quite frankly, they're yes. coming from evangelical church congregations, like it or not. Yes. That's a fact. Yes. Uh, yes. So I don't I don't know that anything's really changed there. As a matter of fact, maybe a pendulum swinging back toward it becoming more relevant yeah. and more pervasive. Yeah, in some ways it has. And uh, and again, that's part of the context in which we do science. So in the last, in the previous administration in the US, I saw a fair amount of mobilization among scientists who suddenly sort of started realizing that maybe science is under threat. There was, you know, there were these March March for Science, something that happened after the, the, the Women's March uh, in, 20, in 2017. And that has spawned some organizations that have pushed for this. But one of the things that intrigued me about that is that, yes, you know, people are suddenly becoming aware that maybe funding for science is going to go down. And the U.S. is pulling out of the, the climate change uh, accords. The U.S. is pulling out of other uh, areas of science. The EPA was, was devastated. So a lot of environmental research took a hit. So there was, there was a real threat. But it was that threat of funding and you know national level politics changing that suddenly awakened a lot of people to maybe there is you know something that we need to do to engage the public i want to check why weren't in. we paying attention to that before yeah my apologies i didn't mean to cut you off there i, I wanted to check yeah. in on our live chat first of all here's a compliment for you from yeah. terry who says omg badgers and coyotes i had to pull over <laughs> to see what's going on terry yes, there yes, you yes. go uh, kim <laughs> says I, I just sent dr Cuddy's information if you're just tuning in by the way live streaming us maybe on the mixler audio app mm-hmm. we're talking to dr medusa then uh, Cuddy uh, out of the out of north carolina state university um you can you can find him on twitter at leaf warbler which i have to mm-hmm. assume has something to do with you you're, you earning your phd in india studying migrant yes. birds is, is that right yes Th- that's a reference to yes that? So Kim says, it is, it is, yeah. Well, I'll let you. Kim says, I just sent Dr. Cuddy's information to a friend. Of my, my kid wants to live in the forest and play in the dirt for her entire career. I just know she's going to love. <laughs> I know she's going to love his Twitter account. That I love to hear that. I mean, this is kind of how I got into this field as well. Is it's just simply enjoying being outdoors and, and chasing after wild things. And yeah, leaf warbler. The name comes from uh, a group of species that I studied for for my PhD. Uh, a few decades ago now, I won't reveal how old I am, but but I, I, I am from India, as you mentioned. I guess I'm the second South Asian guest you have today, and uh, and getting back to badgers, I mean, I, I love that people are sort of really excited by this, and I've, I've been really thrilled to see the response that this tweet has gotten, both because of the ba- the badgers and coyotes, as well as people engaging in this question of where were the stories and and what where they came from. But badgers in particular seem to be really interesting as a group in their way, in the way they associate with other species. So you have the coyote and badger story here, but in Africa and in the Himalayas in India, there's another species of badger called the honey badger. It has similar beha- you know, behavior, you know, they burrow, they, they live underground and, and they are omnivorous like the badgers here, but they are called honey badgers because they're particular fondness for honey. But how do they get honey? It turns out they actually have an association. This is again something that was observed by a lot of native people, uh, both in India and, and in Africa. There is a, a bird that's actually been named the honey guide because it has an association with the badger. So what these birds do is they come and sort of dance in front of the badger when, when they find a, a beehive. And then 
the badger follows them, the honey badger, and the badger will then, you know, break down the the beehive, and which allows the uh, the honey guy to then feed on the on the larvae and the insects in the beehive. So that's a, a partnership, which could also be a friendship. I don't know, you know, to what extent there's individual association there, but it's a known association. There's you'll even find, I think, some. Uh, maybe one of the Attenborough documentaries or something. There, there's beautiful videos of of this from Africa. But what, one of the things that people have observed this, and in fact, local communities there, people, hunters notice the association, and they actually, you know, sort of uh, force their way into this interaction because they started following the the honey guide also, and in some ways they've co-opted the badgers part in this by getting the honey for themselves. Hmm. So humans have, you know, shoehorned into this relationship and, and exploited it. I haven't seen anything like that in, in the Coyote and Badger story, but uh, it, it's part of lore. So it's, it's really wonderful. Jillian, credit to Jillian on our chat, who says the, now that's a true wingman. Uh, well played. <laughs> yes. Well played, Jillian. Uh, this is amazing. What a comment from Escher, uh, who's watching this morning, says as somebody who spent their life in science, I, I never really even took science being colonized into consideration. But thinking yep. about it now, it's so true and so yep. obvious. That from a scientist. Yeah, that's great to hear. And that's the kind of response we've been getting. Uh, so, so last May, a, a couple of South African colleagues of mine, a former postdoc, uh, postdoctoral scholar who worked with me some years ago, and an anthropologist, we we published a paper in, in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution on decolonizing science. And, and the, it's, it's, it's already one of the most read uh, and cited papers that I've ever been part of. So I'm, I'm really gratified by the positive response we've had from a lot of people like uh, the person you just mentioned, saying that they hadn't thought about this perspective. And, and I wouldn't say, you know, it's not science being colonized, but it's more science being part of colonization. It's part of the colonial, uh, systemic colonial structures that have shaped our world around us. And in the and so thinking about the conduct of science itself as, as a colonial process and realizing how that operates, I think opens science up to all kinds of new discoveries. And, uh, and that's a whole other dimension of bias that we have to remove from the way we conduct science, which we have not been trained to do. This might I, I fear that this question is going to be overly simplistic or, or that it's not focused enough. But mm-hmm. what are some tangible steps or what's one tangible step that people can take audience members here to do their own part to 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 decolonize science? Like, I guess what I'm admitting right now is if you said to me, yeah. Ryan, what are you going to do to decolonize science today? I wouldn't even know where to start. I would have no idea. Yeah, so, so I'm glad you asked that because in our paper, uh, which I've, I've created a link to our paper, but in, in that we actually took this approach of offering practical suggestions because we didn't. It, it's easier to just criticize and say, you know, you're doing this wrong, but that doesn't communicate. That's not a good way of communicating with people because it might turn people off and get them defensive. So our goal was to offer practical suggestions. So we've offered in this paper a uh, a set of practices that we think will help people engage in the process of decolonizing. And we described it in the context of ecology, but I think it applies across all fields and even our day-to-day lives. So we've outlined five different shifts in practice 
that we think will will help in the decolonization process. And you know, there's a there's a diagram in the paper that I could share. Uh, I, I guess we can't share on this slide. It's okay. Paper. I'll let our I'll let our audience know yeah, that yeah. that Sarah's linked yeah. to it in our YouTube chat, and we'll tweet okay. it out from our account as well at Real Talk RG. Yeah. So the so the the practices that we recommend is what well, the biggest one I think in in some ways. Uh, that applies to everybody is that we have to decolonize our minds. So in a sense, we have a lot of these colonial frameworks embedded in the way we view the world. Becoming aware of those and and actively working to remove them is a big step and the hardest one, perhaps. One example of this I'll give you is is a reaction we had to our paper from, you know, when, when the paper came out, we had a lot of pushback on Twitter. Of course, where else would you get that kind of pushback from, from a number of right-wing trolls who picked it up, you know, someone on Quillet, I think, saw it and, and there was a whole bunch of uh, negative tweets about it. Many of them are funny, but the one thing that seemed to be a trigger for people jumping to attack the paper or trying to criticize it was a map that we have in our paper. So we have a map that shows, uh, you know, the distribution of bird species around the world that have European names as part of their scientific names, right? European family names. Why would you know a bird in Latin America or in Africa carry a European family name? Well, because Western scientists, when they discovered it, we often have this the tradition in science of naming them after our patrons or after prominent scientists or you know funding people who gave them money and so on. So you have ended up with all these European names given to birds that were known to local people, but the local knowledge and the local names have been erased and supplanted with this scientific name which is really a tribute to somebody who paid for the science. So, but the, the interesting thing about why that map triggered people is because we did a simple thing, which is we printed the map showing the, the South Pole at the top of the page and the North of the bottom. So in conventional terms, we flipped it upside down. Although it's kind of hard to think about a globe being flipped because you know, there's no up or down on the planet. Yet that was such a trigger that a lot of people we're calling us stupid, and you know, don't you know the compass points north? Somebody asked. Uh, it's like you know, if it points north, it points south too. Which is funny. Uh, and they were also saying, you know, Nature, the, the prestigious science journal, has become a, a Tumblr blog publishing this kind of woke science stuff and so on. And that they were saying, you know, one of the funny ones was that has Nature outsourced their editorial to Teen Vogue? So why does a, a simple map change like that? provoke such a strong reaction. And I've, I've subsequently had people, scientists, colleagues of mine who study geography, who make maps for a living, pause at that map and saying, why did you choose to show it that way? And that to me illustrates how deeply embedded the colonial framework of the world is in our minds. Because there is no real up or down in the world. Why is it that North America and Europe are always at the top of the map? Why is it that many of the projections actually show them to be disproportionately bigger than Africa, you know, many maps that people, that kids grow up, uh, you know, reading about, reading from in their in their textbooks, still continue to show Greenland as being almost bigger than Africa. Why is that? That's an example of this colonial mentality embedded in our culture pretty deep. So, so if you want to decolonize your mind, you could simply start by questioning these basic things that we assume as our scientific truths, and and decoupling that from where it came from. So the other step, you know, so that's one of the big steps. The other things we recommend is, you know, knowing your history. Again, I've been talking about the history of science and how these things came about. So connecting 
what you know with the history of how that knowledge came about is something that anybody can engage in specifically for scientists we also emphasize decolonizing access access to research access to publication access to things like museum specimens you know archaeological collections or in my case collections of birds specimens that are that are mostly in north american or european museums how does a, a, a scientist you know like i was a, a student in india how would i get access to these places if i didn't have connections to be able to you know do my phd from the us and then be able to access some of these things so decolonizing access is important we also need to expand the way we conduct our science and work in sort of inclusive teams so including people from local communities including people from uh wherever we are doing our research other than being the sort of parachute scientists you know colonial scientists or people from us doing research in africa on climate change they go in for a short while they get their publications they might end up on these international panels but where's the voice of the of the local people this is something that this week in the cop 26 meetings it's, it's been there is a strong indigenous voice you know challenging a lot of the decisions being made and a lot of the science being discussed there is where is the indigenous voice where are the people whose lives are actually being affected and, and are we allowing space in the way we conduct science for people to be able to bring those perspectives in and even shape the kinds of questions we ask You know, one of the one of the most important conversations I think we've had on there. I don't know if I want to categorize it like that, but one of the more enlightening conversations, certainly for me, was this summer uh, during the Mm so-called wildfire season where we talked to an indigenous firekeeper about land like the the, the millennia of history of wildfire management by indigenous by First Nations across across Canada, across the country. Exactly. That's a great example of where Western science did a lot of damage. or colonial science i'd say you know west is sort of a geography geography and colonial history gets entangled there but the the colonial western science has done a lot of real damage uh, both in the us and in in other parts of the world as well with this coming in with this authority of science aligned you know enforced through like the us forest service and drawing on whatever the scientific expertise was which with a focus on timber and therefore arguing that fire is a bad thing in general everywhere regardless of which which ecosystem you are in and suppressing fire for uh, a century or so and only in the last few decades have, have ecologists and you know scientists have suddenly realized that fire actually played a big role in these ecosystems and that indigenous people like the firekeeper you mentioned they have been playing a role in maintaining the ecosystem so even what we consider as natural ecosystems were actually shaped and and, and uh, you know maintained by interactions and management actions from native communities but we completely you know supplanted that knowledge suppressed that knowledge said, you know science tells us that we need to suppress fire fire is bad smoky bear and all of that and now we're paying the, the wages you know the, the cost of that now 100 years later because so much fuel has built up that the cycle of droughts and fires now it it's it's horrifying every year to look at these images and then if you look at the history to think about you know this could have been prevented if if the forest service had not done what they did in terms of ignoring all the local knowledge and this is such i so, mean it's a fascinating conversation because i mean you, you look at yeah. at i mean in in the broader context of of reconciliation and obviously this is a conversation happening um i'd be curious for your take on on what you see state side certainly in canada right now 
I, I want to say that it's a priority of many Canadians. I know that the majority of Canadians are extremely troubled and, and embarrassed and infuriated and heartbroken by the, the light yep. that's being shone on Canada's history, uh, in particular yes. of residential schools, but, but also of, of unacceptable living conditions on First Nations reserves and in communities across the country. And, and the conversation is broadening beyond. I mean, the firekeeper example is just one. Uh, but you can take mm-hmm. I, I can think of another one of, you know, for example, indigenous medicine and, and the traditions around that. Yes. You see a real I know that you'll get the hardcore, quote unquote, scientists or we often say Western medicine or people will say modern yep. medicine that will say you're not yep. going to smudge your way out of this or, you know, sage or sweet grass is not going to help you with that. You need the prescriptions. You need the pharmaceuticals. Right. But if you see I mean, if you if you're paying attention, to what's going on around you? There is a real return to that. And we could also talk about justice and we could also talk about a whole bunch of other uh, applications in everyday life where indigenous traditions, I think, are starting to resurface with a real awareness around them. Yes, yes. I think that's happening uh, in many ways. And I think maybe the conversation is bigger in Canada at the moment because of the residential school story. Yeah, it hasn't been. I, I don't sense that it's as mainstream in the U.S. as it needs to be. But uh, you're mentioning of indi- these indigenous medicinal practices out- or medicines outside of the Western medicine framework is interesting. Uh, and if, if I have a couple of minutes, I'll just give you an example of what we experience in, in one of the classes I teach. So I teach a graduate class in decolonizing science. And the first time I taught it was in 2020 spring when a class was disrupted by the pandemic, right? We had to go like everybody else, we had to go offline, you know, off campus, and start teaching online and pivot to a different way of doing this. And one of the things my students immediately decided to do was that we wanted to look at this pandemic through this lens of decolonization and look at the history of pandemics and how they've impacted Native communities. And of course, that's a big area, right? I mean, pandemics have shaped the way colonization in the U- in North America, especially, was able to suppress and kill a lot of Native communities. And the 1918 pandemic from 100 years ago was something that disproportionately hit Native communities harder. Well, it turned out, as we looked into it, that this, this COVID pandemic is, was doing the same thing. The impacts were much harder on Native American communities. So my students decided to focus on the Navajo Nation, and we looked at you know, what was happening there. And there's, there's a lot of complicated issues there in terms of lack of access to resources, lack of uh, you know, the medical services available to them, and so on and lack of media coverage, because at one point uh, in May of 2020, the Navajo Nation had infection rates that were comparable to New York in, in April, you know, the previous month. But New York got a whole lot more attention than the Navajo Nation did. So what, so we, you know, my students wrote an article about this that was published in Science for the People magazine a few months ago. But one of the interesting things that we found, and, and following up on that, is that if you look at what happened once the vaccine became available, right? The native, there was, there was several articles this summer that were talking about how uh, Native American communities were the ones that had among the highest rates of vaccination. Right? You talk about Western science, indigenous science, what might be home remedies or whatever. And you have a complex interaction here because the people who are opposing vaccines are, as you mentioned, you know, maybe from certain religious communities or from political motivations that are part of the colonial you know, populations who are opposing them for pol- on political grounds. 
and they are going and doing these weird home remedies of you know uh, that are unproven. Whereas the Native American communities have been ahead of everybody else in saying we need the vaccines, we are going to get vaccinated because we've seen what it does to our communities in the past. So, which suggests to me that we need to think about how we also communicate and build bridges between these different knowledge systems. So it's not that these knowledge systems are in opposition. Native Americans can also benefit from science, and they they know when it, when you know these communities have shown that they know when what's useful to them. It's incumbent on the more powerful scientists from the, the established sort of traditions to then pay attention to what's valuable in their knowledge systems and bring about sort of this greater communication between these different ways of knowing the world that will help us do better in the future. So that that's a, a weird example to me that people in the Western, you know, colonizers, if you will, who have benefited the most from science are now denying it. Whereas the colonized who were most affected by pandemics in the past are saying, yes, give us the vaccines. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I mean, I just, I just, I've been like writing notes down that I'm just going to reflect on later. Like, I mean, the the whole idea about woke science, I mean, it's, it's an oxymoron (laughs) in a sense, isn't it? I mean, I mean, and, and, and and when did woke become such an insult? Like, exactly. You know, like, it's a strange thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like, you know, criticizing someone for becoming enlightened, but I I don't know if there's such a thing as woke science because science is science by definition, but what is science and how do we define science and, how does colonization? I mean, it's just. I mean, even your comments about the positioning of the globe and the and and yeah. you know, I mean, the 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 uh, what's the word of the ratio of the size of Greenland versus Africa. I mean, this yeah. stuff's blowing my mind. Uh, yeah. I'm very grateful for. And these are things we take for granted, right? This is, this is part of our knowledge base. And then I'm having yeah. this introspection, like I'm like, are we just are we just arrogant? Are we ignorant or are we arrogant or are we both? Are we are we it's arrogant a, because of our it's ignorance? It's 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 the combination, and it's the chicken and the egg, and which begats which. And thanks for making time. Yeah. So for my, us. my 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 one. Yeah. So I, I just say the last thing is that you know my yeah. response to that what you just expressed is that it's good if you feel that discomfort, and I think we need to cultivate a habit of putting ourselves in that position of discomfort because that's when you learn the most when your when your beliefs are shaken a little bit. And you have to ask the question. So I, I hope that's what we all learn to do more it, of. It's our MO. I mean, when we launched last yeah. November, you know, almost a year ago, we promised people the show would live in the gray areas and would make you uncomfortable. Great. And you have delivered today. My, my friend, it's not always a compliment to be told that you've made thousands of people uncomfortable, but you have in the best way today. Uh, Dr. Medusa Dan Cuddy uh, from North Carolina State University. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Leaf Warbler. And, and we have tweeted out yep. that report from our official account at Real Talk RJ. Thanks for your time. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. You got it. Me. Yeah, it's that uh, it's that balance between ignorance and arrogance. And, and which leads to which. Uh, but but I mean, even, you know, what, what a great example about the positioning of the globe and the, and the ratio, the size of the continents or, or of the in particular certain nations like Greenland. Fascinating stuff. Nice booking, Hoyles. Very well done. Thanks. I'll be honest a little bit when, when I saw the fr- I'm just going to be honest with you. I know. I know. You know, right. It's real talk. And the real talk is that when I saw we're going to talk about decolonizing science, I went, oh, boy, you thought woke science. I thought woke science. That's exactly what you thought. I thought we are going to swing hard left for half an hour. But uh, I would defy anybody to call that guy an idiot. (laughs) Tell tell that guy he doesn't know what he's talking about. Huh? You know, 
he said, where, where, you know, where would you get anything nastier than Twitter? I thought, well, maybe releasing the report on Facebook might be mm. the worst. That might be the absolute worst. Uh, I saw one of our audience members. I don't remember who saying if, if you if you're tweeting without pushback, you're not tw- you're not doing it right. That was Fatima. <laughs> Fatima's been nailing it today. She's it's it's too bad we don't have a live chat comment of the month. And she might she might be in the running for the mug. Unfortunately, it's our email of the month club that counts for um, now. Hey, I'm thinking um, I'm going to run this past the control tower here. I'm thinking uh, the show, you know, we're, we're coming up on, on two hours now. I still got a couple of things to talk about. I think maybe we bump our question of the week till tomorrow. Uh, we're going to go through the results of our most recent question of the week, asking you about your political priorities. Some really interesting insight, but I I don't want to skip reminding you about our current question of the week. So if you go to our website, RyanJesperson.com, it's presented by our official research and strategy partners at Y Station. It's a follow up on our roundtable around ADHD and uh, ADHD Awareness Month. It was a fascinating conversation if you missed it. And the team at Y Station, it resonated with them, too. And they said that, you know, after you know recognizing October as ADHD Awareness Month, uh, it got us thinking that neurodivergence is not a topic that we discuss enough. And we know you're a smart and engaged audience. And so we're looking forward to what may be an awkward or uncomfortable set of questions for some people. But we know we're confident it's going to lead to more conversations about mental health and wellness. And so we encourage you to respond to our question of the week this week. We've also tweeted out that link and you can find it directly from our website. If you follow me on Twitter yesterday, you probably saw this. This tweet from my account at Ryan Jesperson. It was the first of the month. It was November 1st which means 15% off every tab over 75 bucks at Friesen Brothers at all 16 locations. And in my circumstance, it also meant a made-to-order sourdough sandwich and from-scratch chili delivered to our studio by the wonderful and amazing Carrie Skelton, who happens to be my bride. Check this out. I want you to see this if you're watching on YouTube. Look at this sandwich. As one of one of you said, the meat-to-sourdough ratio there is absolutely glorious. There is no cheaping out. This is a made-to-order sandwich from Friesen Brothers. It was a bit of a move for me to pull eating this as Sarah Hoyle sat about eight feet away through plexiglass just looking at me going, really? I guess I could have shared half the sandwich with you, but it was just so damn good. I couldn't help myself. I would have wasted the meat. I would have pulled the meat off. So but see, then I could have made like a double-decker. Oh, double yeah. yeah, fair enough, because there's still enough veg in there to keep anybody happy. Now, before anybody gets into it, yes, sometimes I do the grocery shopping too, but Carrie just happened to be doing it this first of the month in November, which meant lunch for me. There's so much going on at Friesen Brothers. We encourage you to check them out for more than 65 years, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. We also want to remind you how easy it is to take your business when it comes to internet, electricity, and natural gas to Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider. Why should you do it? Well, because you'll probably pay less, probably get a better deal, but also they back Real Talk. You love Real Talk. Why not back them? With the promo code 2021-REALTALK, they're going to give you $70 off your first bill, whether it's commercial or residential. When you take your business over to parkpower.ca, super easy to switch. They do all the work for you, so you don't have to worry about that awkward conversation where you know your current utilities provider is going to try to bring you back like they always do. Well, what if we gave you a better deal? And you go, well, why wouldn't you give me the better deal in the first place? Why is everybody else getting a better deal? Exactly. I've been your longtime customer. Why are you screwing me over? Mm -hmm. You're taking me for granted. Right. They will not take you for granted at Park Power. Oh, no. At parkpower.ca. 
I've never really picked their brain on whether or not they like that we sort of pick fights with the other. We don't name the other utility companies. We're, we're just sort of picking fights with the entire industry is what we're doing on behalf of Park Power. Should we pick fights with the Apple Store on behalf of the team at Westworld do Computers? It, do it! Do it! The Apple Store is like the gap of tech stores. You walk in and you see you're not getting that personal experience. It's not family owned. It's owned by the big corporation. The corporation doesn't care about you. Daryl and his family do. They've owned and operated Westworld. He, he's going to be like, can you please stick to just talking about like the MacBooks and the Apple Watches and the iMacs? I'll say, okay, okay, okay. For more than 40 years, they've been your Apple experts. And the, he tells me they're shipping to real talkers across the country. Those of you that are shopping at Westworld.ca, including, and I keep obsessing over it. You know, it's only a matter of time before I get one myself. That Series 7 Apple Watch. I'm training with Graham Duty again today. I know he's going to be in my ear. Where's the Apple Watch? I'm going to want to keep an eye on your steps and your heart rate and everything else. You can find it. They'll ship across the country at Westworld.ca. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you that right now, you mentioned Real Talk, a drive through window at the counter, what have you, at the Dairy Queens of Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. They're going to give you two double cheeseburgers for seven bucks. Just, just like we saw Real Talker Michael and his little guy Gabriel crushing those double cheeseburgers the other day. We showed you that photo. They were there for Miracle Treat Day, where, by the way, the Dairy Queens... They got over a million bucks donated. We got some real-time totals. You want to hear? I mean, these numbers are absolutely mind-blowing, these Dairy Queens. So just this year alone, and this is due in part to you, Real Talkers, that showed up at these store locations, Palisades raised 28 grand and change. Nemeo, 28 grand and change. Newcastle, they're all within like 500 bucks, which is really wild. 28 grand there, 23 grand in Westmount, 109,000 total, bringing their total donation to the Stollery over the course of about a decade to more than a million dollars. Absolutely amazing. I'm going to keep giving them a shout out for that because that community commitment deserves recognition. And so do you, Real Talkers, those of you that showed up to get a blizzard on Miracle Treat Day. Why not show up today? Two double cheeseburgers for seven bucks at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park. Every once in a while, news will break. Well, I mean, every day news breaks when we're live. And every once in a while, we'll have a chance to talk about it. We let off the show today with Tara Sloan, the host of Hometown Hockey, talking about the Chicago Blackhawks and this report, the fallout from this report into allegations, uh, a complaint initially filed by former Blackhawks prospect, the so-called black ace Kyle Beach, uh, back leading up to the 2010 Stanley Cup final. Well, Greg Wyshynski from Yahoo uh, breaking the story. It's been rumbling for a while that today a lawsuit will be filed against the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Minnesota Wilds current general manager, Billy Guerin, alleging a sexual assault cover up. This is Greg Wyshynski, known as Puck Daddy, who's breaking this story. The wife of a former coach in the Pittsburgh Penguins organization will file a sexual assault lawsuit today. Uh, it's Aaron Scald, married to former Wilkes-Barre Scranton assistant coach Jared Scald, expected to file the suit in Rhode Island, alleging that Clark Donatelli, who's the former head coach of the Penguins American Hockey League affiliate, sexually assaulted her while on a team road trip in Providence, Three years ago, in 2018, the suit will name Garen, uh, currently the GM of the Minnesota Wild, as well as Penguins owners, Ron Burkle and the so-called Magnificent One, Mario Lemieux, 
as defendants. We're expecting a news conference later today. Now, what makes this especially significant is that Bill Guerin has been rumored to be the replacement for Stan Bowman as the general manager of Team USA's hockey entry for the next Winter Olympic Games. So safe to assume that's not going to happen. This is a speculative comment on my part. And of course, we'll wait to see what plays out later today. And we'll have comments on that tomorrow. We also wanted to follow up on a story that we've been covering out of the Alberta legislature. We told you when the story broke just uh, a couple of days ago, just a few days ago, that a former staffer at the Alberta legislature had filed suit against the premier's office, alleging a culture of sexual harassment and alcohol abuse at the Alberta legislature. It specifically names Alberta's ag minister, Devin Dreeshen, who yesterday made a very curious comment to reporters. And I wanted to touch on this so it doesn't fly under the radar. This was the comment as reported, and I'm going to get to what we saw on Twitter here, but Minister Dreeshen essentially alleging, Sam, do we have those ones? The the tweet of Devin Dreeshen's comment. Uh, He essentially basically said, like, hey, listen, I've got a tough job, and a lot of times there's some drinking that goes on. Uh, that was basically the comment. I mean, it was a pretty unbelievable comment. Uh, his response to Ariella Kimmel's allegations, quote, with my behavior, there are long, hard days in the legislature, and I think that's something that everybody has had to deal with. I have no idea what the hell the minister was thinking in saying that. It looks bad on paper if it was planned out ahead of time. I can't imagine that a crisis communication strategist advised him. I mean, this government is spending three plus million dollars on the premier's issues management and communication staff alone. It's the most expensive premier staff in Alberta's history, unless I'm missing one. But it's more than three million dollars. Quote, with my behavior, there are long, hard days in the legislature. And I think that's something that everybody's had to do deal with here's how twitter responded yesterday i wanted to pull i just pulled a few uh, shauna gorlock says you know my my hospital colleagues and i have somehow managed to not hold drunken parties on shift or obnoxiously berate and sexually harass other staff and i guarantee you says shauna that we've put in far longer hours during covid for far less pay than you minister She adds, you pompous, arrogant, self-serving ass. That from Shauna. Here's another one from OBGYN, Dr. Fiona Matatal. She's been on the show before. Long, hard days. Really, Devin? As an OBGYN, I could tell you a lot about long, hard days. Many Albertans work long, hard days. Think farmers, service industry workers, laborers, healthcare workers, and somehow don't use that as an excuse for sexual harassment. This one jumped out at me. Larry Harris. He says, you know what? He tags the minister. I believe Larry's from central Alberta, isn't he? Yeah. And he's a chef and he was on Canadian Canada's top chef or something like that. The baking baking challenge. Baking show. What is it, Sam? Great Canadian Canadian baking show. Yeah. Great Canadian baking show. He was so great. I'm a huge fan. I'm trying to figure out. I don't think that that uh, Dreeshen would be his minister. Larry's is he in Red Deer? I don't know exactly. But anyway, let me put it this way. Devin Dreeshen is a, a minister from central Alberta area. And so this maybe hits close to home. But this is what Larry had to say yesterday. He says, you know what, minister? I've worked long, hard days, too. Days that didn't involve drinking on the job and abusing staff. That's no excuse for the behavior that's been reported. 
Did we have another one, Sam? I think I said, yeah. Oh, that's right. This one here from from the now free bird, former Calgary City Councilor Drew Farrell. Uh, I guess what? Now one week, two weeks from two weeks removed from office. Uh, we asked her to join us, by the way, the morning after the election. She said, you know what I'm going to do? She said, I'm going to go on a road trip with my partner. She said, I'm going to stay off Twitter for a little bit. She says, I think that that's important for me. And I think that I've earned that. I said, counselor or former counselor or Drew. I said, you take that time. And now back on Twitter. And now back on Twitter, <laughs> throwing hand grenades, says Drew Farrell. I can safely say that no matter how long and how hard my work days were, I never got hammered and harassed anyone. You want to see long, hard days? Talk to someone working in the ICU. And then I love this. Maybe some men are just too emotional for political life. That goes three for three on the laugh inducer here in the Real Talk studio. It's not always easy to crack Hoyles and Brooks at the same time. And uh, I just I don't know what you guys thought. I mean, I, f- I feel like sometimes, you know, we want to tee up conversation and, 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 you know, really get into it. But I don't know that anybody's going to have a different opinion on this one of how absolutely tone deaf, moronic and telling those comments were long, hard days. With regards to my behavior, there's been long, hard days and yeah precisely there's no there is no excuse for sexual harassment and also you know everyone has had a long hard day and that has not resulted in somebody sexually harassing somebody else it's just it's it it does not stand up i'm sorry no i'm not even sorry when people are waiting for i think like some sort of meaningful response here. The government does get off on this sort of this sort of, uh, hey, listen, um, and I'm talking about getting off the hook, not, you know, becoming pleased. Uh, but although they get off the hook a little bit because any politician can say with a matter before the courts, uh, I cannot comment on this. But I think someone that would understand leadership, public communication, empathy and be able to read the room you know, perhaps like a premier might say, listen, this is all over our radar. These are obviously extremely troubling allegations. I am going to be bringing in either some form of outside uh, governance or investigate and, you know, to, to, to sort of look into these allegations to try to determine if 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 women or if people in, in positions, uh, you know, perhaps with less power in sort of a power structure relationship might be experiencing things like this lawsuit alleges this is obviously very troubling to me and something that I make a commitment to the people of Alberta that we're going to look into and take seriously. And as of yet, that has not been the case. Interesting. It's a big deal. Interesting, though, that he had something to say about uh, Councillor Sean Chu and was saying, yeah, we need this. This We're, gonna, we're looking into it. And now silence. Chu's going to try to ride this thing out. Yeah. I mean, I said I said in a tweet, I said, I give this guy three to six weeks. I don't see how he can ride this thing out. It looks to me like he's going to try to defy everybody. He's going to give the middle finger to everybody and try to stay in that role until the next election is called. It's the Trump playbook. Yeah. Just but, ignore. Keep moving forward. Well, I don't what ha- I don't know what you're talking well, no, about. He's just basically saying that it's been dealt with, that it's been investigated. It's been dealt with. It's been handled. That's not the truth. No, no, it's not the truth at all. I, I, I just... The Sean Chu thing baffles me because I, I think one of the things that's really exposed is that like when, when you have nefarious actors that weasel their way into government like this, there's no mechanism to correct this. I mean, I know that there's there's people from the provincial government that have actually mentioned on the record that they're sort of looking into options here. But you're right. He can just ride this out and kind of, you know, act like it hasn't happened. Whereas, you know, 
Devin Dreeshin, Mr. Mega Hat over here, when he talks about having long, hard days, I mean, I would like to remind you, Minister, that your government is making a lot of Albertans' long, hard days much longer and much harder, and maybe you should go tour an ICU if you want to find out what a long, hard day looks like. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I appreciate I hadn't seen this. Uh, a real talker, uh, this is Christopher, who put this on my radar. I'm literally seeing this right now for the first time. A tweet sent out by the minister at 9 p.m. at 8.57 p.m. yesterday saying I wrapped up a great engagement tonight with folks from central Alberta on rural economic development. And if you look at the tweet, uh, there he is. He's got his tablet or his laptop set up on a drink cooler with coasters. Chris says this is a joke to him. Well, gotta be careful what i say right now when sometimes when i see something like for the very first time i can erupt a little bit this seems this strikes me as eruption worthy uh maybe i'll count to a million do i have time to count to a million before tomorrow's show um that harkens that harkens back to the um rodeo flag yeah just uh, yeah, the Calgary Ken- Stampede pennant behind Jason Kenny, right, that, right in the middle of a, of a fourth wave. That's exactly with what more that than is. a thousand people in the hospital. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, gosh, something new every day, isn't there? That was a throwaway comment, uh, but I just I'm a little bit shocked right now at that tweet. Christopher, thanks, you got me in a good way. I appreciate it. I'm going to move on, and then count to a million, and then we'll do a great show tomorrow. How's that? The team at Eden Landscaping wants me to remind you that just because the ground is starting to freeze up a little bit, that's true. Pretty soon snow is going to be falling. Also true. Yes, we recognize there are some pockets of this beautiful land, this beautiful nation that have already seen snow. It doesn't mean that all outdoor landscape construction grinds to a halt. Oh, no. In fact, the team at Eden Landscaping is still able to set you up for this winter or maybe into next spring to make sure your outdoor space is brought to life how cool would it be to have a pergola or some sort of a gazebo set up over your barbecue or over your outdoor cook station why not barbecue as you know my dad would do he would soak these cedar planks my dad does this fabulous cedar plank salmon and i think a, a cedar plank salmon on the barbecue in the middle of a snowfall in january is just about the greatest culinary and, and, and sort of, I mean, I gotta say that's Canadiana. That's gonna let's make it wild Pacific caught salmon just to really ramp it up. Let's not make it old growth cedar though. Can we bring every possible news story into one promo for Eden Landscaping? Do it, do it. It's young cedar and wild salmon under the brand new gazebo built by Mike and his team at Eden Landscaping. You can learn more about what they do and start that conversation with them at landscapeedmonton.ca. Of course, we also want to remind you that the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge took five minutes to catch their breath after October, their biggest sale of the year, and they've still got inventory right now available. That has not been the case for any dealership across the country. COVID-19 and the Suez Canal block and the ice storms in Texas and the microchips and all these reasons why there was virtually no new truck and for that matter, car selection. Well, that's been remedied. And if you go to Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge right now, you can visit them online via the link 
under the sponsors tab on our website, you'll be able to check out what they've got with some of the top selling trucks, SUVs and cars on the market under that Dodge and Jeep, that Ram badge as well. That Ram 1500, of course, back to back to back North American Motor Trend Truck of the Year. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to continue these conversations. We're going to get into some of your emails. We're going to follow up on what's happening at the COP26 conference. I'm going to tell you how my counting to a million went, and I'd love to hear from you too. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can get us on the email front. Be sure to smash the like button if you enjoyed today's show. Podcast drops soon, friends. We'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.